You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hello, welcome once again to Cinema a la Carte. A Monthly podcast, generally, uh, on part of the Dark Discussions News Network. I am one of your co-hosts, Philip, from the state of New Hampshire in the U.S. of A., and the man that just snorted with a giggle from Michigan. This is Eric. Eric, how are you, sir? I'm well. Excellent. And in the state of New York? This is Shiva, god of death. Indeed. Mike from New York. Uh, so... Uh, who are we and what do we do? Well, basically, we are uh, part of the Dark Discussions News Network, which is www.darkdiscussions.com. Uh, you can email us two ways, uh, darkdiscussions at aol.com or through uh, the website and just press the Contact Us link on any menu on any page and an email box will pop up there as well. Just write Cinema a la Carte in the subject and we will know that this email that you're sending is specific to this podcast here because that email is the general po- email podcast for uh, the entire network. Uh, we don't have individual podcast emails. Uh, so uh, we will read your email on the podcast if you so uh, email us. Uh, now, uh, Eric, what, what, what is this, this, this podcast? What's, what's this all about? Uh, this is about doing movies that don't really fit under the Dark Discussions umbrella, so we talk about them here. Fair enough. And what else can people find on the darkdiscussions.com website, Eric? Patreon and stuff. This is a show where I don't plug things. And um, today's date, for folks who are curious, because some of our listeners like Pam are always curious when we record our episodes, because sometimes they don't come out immediately. Um, the game actually just came out today, uh, by the way, which is uh, episode 13 of the podcast. Uh, this will be episode 15. Uh, but today is February 20th, 2023. Uh, so you can uh, uh, note uh, that this is the recording date for those who are curious, like Pam. Okay, so just, just for a moment. <laughs> when did we begin this podcast? Uh, well, we can take a quick look, and it's actually not that difficult to find out, because I can just go to darkdiscussions.com, which I just did, and then I can type in cinema a la carte, or, or hostels, I'll just type in hostels, in the thing, and it says here that it was December 27th, 2019, that that episode was released. Okay, so we began in 2019. And it is now 2023, and you just released episode 15. And that's why I snorted when you said it's a monthly podcast. (laughs) 
Right. But, and if we divide the amount of time from the first episode to today, it's really turned out to be a quarterly podcast. <laughs> In fairness, I don't think we ever set this up to be a monthly podcast, did we? Uh, it was monthly when we started and then stopped. It was monthly, monthly when we started, but the idea was doing it when we didn't have anything else going on. Like when that, we were, was, like, that was not the impression I was under. That was the impression I thought was like when we were doing two podcasts at a time, and then we'd stop doing two podcasts, whether it was Westworld or Game of Thrones. It was something to do in those interstitial periods when there wasn't something else going on. And then, you know, the world Maybe got complicated. and I was just and somebody at the time and was under the impression that you were also going to stop doing television podcasts after those ones were done. But that is not what happened. Well, even though that's the case, uh, we've pretty much been recording monthly uh, in the past three to four months now, which is pretty solid. And uh, all the backlog is being released as well. So I think we're we're moving in the right direction, Eric. <laughs> I, I had to give you a hard time. I had to give you a hard time. It's my job. That's fair. That is it's fair. what you don't pay me for. And that's fair. That's fair. None of us get <laughs> really anything here. Uh, but if people want to donate to Patreon, uh, go to patreon.com backslash Dr. Discussions or press the Patreon link on the website on any page. Um, also, um, where you can find this podcast, there's three ways you can find it. The first is on the darkdiscussions.com website. All the episodes are there. Just type in Cinema a la carte. And you can listen or download the episodes right from there. The second way is to go to Cinema a la carte on anywhere podcasts are found. Uh, that's a, the feed. And so Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, and so on and so forth. Uh, we are all there under Cinema a la carte. And then, of course, you can go to Dark Discussions Podcast feed as well. Again, wherever podcasts are found. And um, this podcast is always dropped in that feed as well because the three co-hosts on this podcast are all uh, the original members of the Dark Discussions Podcast group. So we, uh, since uh, folks who listen to us on our regular podcast, we assume you would be interested in, in these side podcasts as well, so we put it on that feed too. Um, anything else anybody want to bring up uh, related to Cinema a la carte? Right. Nope. Fair enough. All right, so uh, I guess we can get into our topic tonight. So, uh, Eric, what are we going to discuss? Let me do that again. That sounds stupid. Eric, what are we going to discuss? Tonight. <laughs> have to do some dramatic drama there. Tonight. We're, we're gonna be, <laughs> sorry, dude, I have to collect myself. Oh, tonight, we're going to be talking about the 2007 legal thriller, Michael Clinton. Michael, thank God. Look, I, I, I got a situation. Arthur Edens just stripped down naked in a deposition room in Milwaukee. You are the senior litigating partner of one of the largest, most respected law firms in the world. You are a legend. I'm an accomplice. You're a manic depressive. I am Shiva, the god of death. I'm Michael Clayton. You're late. This is a $3 billion class action lawsuit. The architect of our defense has been arrested for running naked through a parking lot. He's building the case against you, North. Nobody's going to let him do that. Let him? Who the hell's going to stop him? I spent 12% of my life defending the reputation of a deadly weed killer. Arthur. No way. They killed the Michael. 
You North needs to know he's under control. They've been shook up. They need to be reassured. What are you telling me? That I'm counting on you. I don't want to say exactly what it was. Just that it was something that would win the whole case. I'm not the enemy. And who are you? You got all these cops thinking you're a lawyer. Then you got all these lawyers thinking you're some kind of cop. You got everybody fooled, don't you? You know exactly what you want. You gotta saddle up here, Michael, and get things under control. What if Arthur was on to something? Do you know Michael Clayton? We have a situation. Stay in the car, lock the door. What would they do if he went public? Arthur, open the door. What would they do? They're doing it. Freeze! Who called it in? Does that make sense to you, this happening? It's like never that? happened. Get out. Get out of the car now. I'm not the guy that you kill. I'm the guy that you buy. Are you so blind you don't even see what I am? Do I look like I'm negotiating? Oh, that's right. Uh, Michael Clayton is a film from 2007. Uh, it was the directorial debut of uh, the fantastic screenwriter Tony Gilroy, who is the brother of uh, the other Gilroy, John Gilroy, who I believe is the uh, director of Nightcrawler. Uh, so uh, the two Gilroy brothers are, are fairly uh, well known in Hollywood, at least specifically to film fans, because they both made Academy-nominated materials. Um, this film here was... Uh, Produced by uh, a number of folks, but specifically uh, Sidney Pollack. Uh, it was written by Tony Gilroy uh, and uh, his brother John Gilroy, who directed Nightcrawler, uh, was the editor. Uh, the film stars uh, a number of folk, uh, including George Clooney as the lead, playing the name character in the title. Uh, Tom Wilkinson, uh, Tilda Swinton, uh, Sidney Pollack is in it, uh, and then. Um, uh, a number of other folks of, of some note are in it as well, including uh, character actor Dennis O'Hare, uh, probably well known for various television shows and movies, including uh, his performance in uh, True Blood. Um, so, uh, the film is 120 minutes, budget of $21.5 million, made $93 million. Uh, its critical acclaim is 91%. Uh, uh, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, the film grossed numerous uh, awards during the awards season, uh, including uh, I think close to seven or eight in the Academy Awards, which I guess is considered the most prestigious. Uh, but unfortunately, that year it was a pretty strong year, uh, including um, No Country for Old Men. So uh, a lot of folks uh, that were up for this movie. Uh, did not win because of it, and I believe its only Academy Award win was by Best Supporting Actress Tilda Swinton. Um, so that's pretty much all I got. Uh, again, the film came out in 2007, so now we're talking 16 years. Uh, and this was when uh, George Clooney was a uh, probably what they would call a movie star, because uh, back in those days, uh, movie stars were still pretty big, uh, versus how it is now, where there is really no movie stars except maybe Tom Cruise. Uh, but uh, this was uh, his heyday, uh, including Tom Wilkinson, too, at that time. Uh, so let's get into our thoughts on this film and how we heard about it. So um, I guess uh, I'll start. 
because uh, it was this, this was my choice. Again, how we do it on Simalakot each month, or in theory, or each quarter, if we go by the thing that Eric said. Um, we each choose a film. So uh, the prior film was um, The Game by Eric, and then 13 Monkeys by Mike, and then to me... 12, 12. Twelve months. You're absolutely right. right. <laughs> uh, so, um, and then uh, and then P for Phillips because we're doing alphabetical order by first name. Uh, this was my turn, so uh, I chose Michael Clayton. Um, yeah. So where I so how I heard about this film? Um, I was visiting my parents uh, with uh, my fiance at the time, which uh, is now my wife, um, in 2007 on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and my father had uh, access to Otis Air Force Base uh, because he uh, was part of the Coast Guard Auxiliary and worked uh, in the canal as one of the people there that uh, ran the lighthouse and all this other crap. And so we had access to the base, and so uh, a number of times back in those days, uh, we went to the theater on the base, which was free, and it was always brand new films. Um, so we went to the base um, back in the day. You could just drive on the base, but after 9-11, everything changed. Uh, so you have to show your card and all that stuff. Uh, so we went in, and I started there at the movie theater. So they have the national anthem that before they even start the film. Um, so my thoughts on the film. That's how I heard about it. I didn't even know it existed. Um, this film, uh, since obviously I chose it, I must have some affinity to it. Um, but yeah, um, this is like one of my favorite films of all time. Um, and it's just awesome. Um, I've watched it maybe 30 to 40 times, including 12 this week, just to be mental health individual. Yeah, I know, but I don't watch regular TV. The professionals have been contacted just. Yeah, I know. But this, this is a film I've, I've watched dozens of times, uh, back when I got the disc in in a week. In the nineteen, in the two thousands and, and teens and stuff, yeah, yeah, I watched it like twelve or thirteen times in the last ten days or so, um, because I I would just watch it and then rewatch it right after. It, it's it's weird, I know. I did that with thirteen billboards, as Eric knows, and my wife thinks I'm insane. So it's three um, billboards, twelve monkeys. I don't know why you're thinking about thirteen so much. Did uh, break any mirrors split. today? Taylor Swift's number is 13, and she was born December 13th. Okay. Um, anyway, um, so we, we go to this film here, and, yeah, it's just a masterly crafted film. The acting is phenomenal, uh, what it says about society and pretty much all of us, meaning everybody, uh, is remarkably true without actually having to say so, and I'll get into why what I'm talking about when we start talking about the film. Uh, it's also an excellent character study of uh, of a person that just isn't happy about life, and uh, as a lot of us who are listening and probably even on the podcast know, uh, there's a lot of times we are down about what's the point of the existence of the world and life and people and, and society and stuff because it's also silly in some cases and this movie kind of shows that. Um, the acting is absolutely phenomenal. 
Uh, Tilda Swinton did win the Academy Award, rightfully so. Uh, Tom Wilkinson, in my opinion, was probably the star. He was unbelievable. And then George Clooney was was um, probably uh, would have won Best Actor. I still think he should have, but they gave it to uh, um, that Irish Daniel Day-Lewis guy for uh, There Will Lincoln? Be Blood. No, There Will Be Blood. Um, and uh, um, Clooney was just like oozed uh, superstardom in this film. Uh, so, yeah, uh, fantastic film. Highest of highest recommends. Um, it's not necessary for everybody because it is a talkie thriller, and so it's not action-packed. Um, and I read so many reviews recently this week about how this is a film that couldn't even be made today because it's not a um, spectacle piece. It's more of an adult movie. Adult meaning intellectually thinking person's movie and, and these type of movies don't exist much anymore is what some of these critics said. So that's my thoughts. Uh, the best of the best. Uh, let's go with you, Eric. Um, I heard about this movie because George Clooney was in it. Pretty sure I saw it in a the theater, although I don't recall the experience. Um, yeah, I used to like this movie a lot more before the last week when Phil started spamming us I am Shiva, God of Death, because... He's a mental health individual, uh, <laughs> but no, this is this is a very good money movie. Um, nothing Phil said is incorrect. It's very well acted and it's a very well made movie. Um, it hits home with me because although they don't, you know, they they have a fictional company in the movie as the the evil doer, um, but yeah, this movie's about Monsanto. <laughs> um, they can they can try and disguise it all they want, but it's about Monsanto, um, and I'm passionate about how evil they are. So I enjoy movies um, that bring that to light. So yeah, that worked for me. Um, uh, yeah, so I I like this movie. All right, that's good. And Mike, what do you got? Yeah, so I don't know when I heard of this movie. I don't know that I took note of the movie when I heard of it. Um, when was this released? In 2007, do you know? Oh, yes, I can get you that. It was uh, fairly late in the year. Uh, it was uh, October 5th. Okay. So I, if I have my time correct, because being a teacher, I tend to think of my years and school years rather than, you know, human years. Um, that was a pretty miserable fucking year. Um so maybe I missed me missed uh I missed it. Um I, I gotta tell you it's I think one of the worst titles for a film because it's the name Michael Clayton is just not it's not like a real name, like, you know, Lincoln, you know, or Jobs. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of a their name. So it doesn't like ring a bell. There's nothing like it's not like like there's a hook to it, like Forrest Gump or John Wick. Um, so it just kind of like lays there as a title to a film. And I don't know that there's a hook in the film either for marketing. You know, say what you will about um, the other films that came out that year, like Daniel Day-Lewis and, and There Will Be Blood, you know, is always giving this over-the-top performance. And, you know, you always get these stories about all the shit that Daniel Day-Lewis puts himself through and puts his fellow filmmakers through um, in order to immerse himself in the role and screaming, I will, you know, drink your milkshake. Or you have a character like Anton Chigurh in um, 
No Country for Old Men. And I don't think there's really any of that here that allows it to just call attention to itself, which may be why it didn't get all the awards and, and, and all that other stuff. And, and I don't I even know how it did at the box office. Um, and I really knew nothing going into it, so I hadn't seen it until last night. Uh, but it is. It is a just a, a very, very well-crafted film, top to bottom. Uh, you're right. George Clooney gives an excellent performance. He gives an excellent performance basically playing a George Clooney part. You know, he doesn't do the, the showy um, – Daniel Day-Lewis reinvent himself with every role kind of thing. He's just George Clooney playing that role. But he does it really, really well. Um, the writing is really good. Um, it is just a top-notch film uh, all the way through um, and certainly worth, especially if you like legal thrillers, it is worth watching. I don't know if I'd agree that it can't get made today. I don't know if it would get into theaters today. But I could see it being made for something. I mean, Jesus, there's there's so much being made now that it would at least end up on a streaming service somewhere. Um, but, you know, even before this, how many legal thrillers, like the days of the John Grisham films? There weren't a lot of John Grisham films that were going to, like, rise to the same level as this movie, right? So, like, you're, you're the firm or... The client, or whatever the others, you know, were that he did. Um, no, this is a, it's a stellar example of how to do a legal thriller. It feels very believable as a as a because he's a character who's not unrealistic. Um, he's a man with actual problems that go outside of the case that he's working on, and how he's handling the case. The, the case itself is messy. You know, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, there's a lot of things going on, a lot of loose ends, and people don't all know exactly what's going on, um, as opposed to things that are often very, very clear cut. And, you know, there's always, there's no mistake, there's mistakes made and so forth. So I really liked that. I think it was a really good film. I'm not going to watch it seven times or 12 times in the next week, though. All right, sounds good. Uh, so it seems like we uh, all uh, like this film. And uh, Eric, uh, do we have a wiki or IMDb? Wiki, wiki. A law firm brings in its fixer to remedy a, the situation after a lawyer has a breakdown while representing a chemical company that he knows is guilty in a multi-billion-dollar class action suit. All right, uh, sounds about right. A little. Too much information, I think, but but that's good. Um, so, for folks who are new to the podcast or our regular listeners, uh, what we do here on Cinema à la carte is fairly uh, like what we do on Dark Discussions, which is we have two sections of the review process. Uh, basically, we don't just come here to review a film. We also like to critique and dissect the film as well. So, that means we will talk about spoilers and twists and specifics and uh, maybe what the screenwriter and director were trying to say and all these other things. Uh, but uh, the main thing is uh, we will throw a spoiler alert when we do get into that section. Um, so the first part of uh, this podcast, we will just talk about general things. So maybe we'll talk about uh, uh, companies and the world. Maybe we'll talk about 
George Clooney and Tom Wilkinson and Tilda Swinton a little bit. Maybe we'll talk about uh, legal thrillers or just thrillers in general, but not necessarily spoilery, spoilery, spoilery stuff. Uh, but we will throw up the the, uh, the warning at that point, and uh, so you can go and watch the film and then come back and listen. Unless you're like some of our listeners, like Kevin Lutz, who uh, is okay with uh, spoilers, even if he hasn't seen the film, because he just likes the the commentary that we give or communications and whatnot. So, uh, all right. So, uh, I guess we can begin and uh, talk about some stuff. Um, yeah. Um, there's a thing that's interesting about this film, which I read was the film is really intentionally named Michael Clayton. At least some critics have said this as they reevaluate the film. You know, so like reviews from like last year where they're reevaluating the film. And they said that this film isn't called the U North uh, Conspiracy or the U North uh, Damage Control or something. It's called Michael Clayton. So what that what does that mean? And they say in the, some of these reviews that they, that this is really a character study on an individual, and they use a bigger picture of a company and society and wrongdoings and mental health and all this other stuff as the things that go around this central character and how that puts that character into the melancholy individual that he appears to be in this film. And as you said, Mike, uh, um, the lead actor, George Clooney, is quote-unquote playing himself. But, you know, we, we've seen him play films in like, you know, Ocean's Eleven and all these other films where he's more of a uh, outgoing, non-depressed fellow. And here he's, he even though he's still George Clooney, he's... Uh, very tired, very sad, very much wondering, has he wasted his life? Never mind having issues around him, including uh, his brothers, the Irish mob, uh, his company, the type of work that he does, and so on and so forth. Uh, so that's where I wanted to start. What do you guys want to say? Uh, we can switch topics or go right into that. What do you want to say? Anyone? Um, well, I'll kind of I'll link to what you were just talking about is that, um, as a lot of people know, uh, my buddy Dan, uh, who's my co-host on the Scansty podcast, uh, was previously a lawyer. And I found myself thinking about him a lot while I was watching this movie because <laughs> um, he used to be uh, – he ended up doing a lot of divorce by the end of uh, his run, uh, but he was a defense attorney. And, uh, man, it's a it's a rough gig. <laughs> Because you you've got to provide your client with the best defense, no matter uh, what the charges are or whether you think they're guilty or not. Um, and that's a huge bummer if you think they're guilty or know that they're guilty. Um, so he found himself at odds with that, um, and eventually stopped being a lawyer because it's because I mean the way he put it to me is that he was he saw the worst of humanity every day and he just couldn't handle it anymore. Um, so I found myself thinking about that a lot while I was watching Michael Clayton, um, because he's kind of you know he got he got kind of screwed over by his brother in this movie, um, 
he's involved with this big mess with this big company for this big law firm who maybe has his back, maybe doesn't, depending on who ends up in charge. And yeah, so that was that was on my mind. Um, so I think what you were saying about the Michael Clayton character is absolutely right. This is um, a lot of this movie is about him and just his place in life at the moment that this movie occurs. Now, let me ask you this, because uh, I've always thought about these things, um, and this kind of, this kind of is, is what you just said wrapped up in a bigger societal thing, which is, are we all guilty? And what I mean, and, and as we know from uh, the Tom Wilkinson character and the George Clooney character, they may actually believe that. And the thing, what I mean is, is well, for example, my father, he worked for Raytheon for 40-something years, and my sister's been there now for like 30-something years. And as a joke, I said to my father uh, back years ago, um, did he feel guilty working for a defense company? And his answer was, I can't insult or attack the company I worked for because they were good to us, meaning they gave us food on the table and so on and so forth and put the kids through college and so on and so forth. Um, and then uh, we all look at things like Apple or Netflix or Amazon or Comcast. You know, you just name any company and whether they're using slave labor in China, whether they uh, control uh, part of the industrial media um pharmaceutical complex, whatever you want to call it, are we all guilty because, like you said, we all know that these bad things are going on, and yet we have the advantages of using it, even if we're too small or what right. seems to be inconsequential to do anything about it. There was, if, you, um, if, you if you don't mind, I'm going to try and slightly rephrase what you just said to, to be a little more straightforward. Sure, sure. Um, which is that um, there are a lot of big companies that do a lot of things that are wrong, and many of us uh, do business with those companies and turn a blind eye to those things uh, because of the convenience that they provide. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what it, that's sums up much easier. Yeah, uh, there's, um, there was a, a, sh- a really really good show. I highly recommend um, on NBC. It was a sitcom called The Good Place, and oh, that show's great. And just to spoil, basically, it's something that's revealed in a later season because uh, it's basically a story about who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to the bad place. It's revealed that nobody has gone to heaven for a very, very long time. And the reason being that we are all so interconnected to so many things that no matter what we do, we end up doing something bad. Even if we don't. Right, because because that, we're, we're complete, what, what's the thing that they said in three, um, three, 13, I mean, three billboards where she says, talks to the priest, she says, we're all. You're monkeys. No, the, the three bill- – yeah, no kidding. A three billboard, she says to the, the priest, uh, if he works for the church and the church allowed something to happen, he's – because of a C, complacent or – Complicit. Complicit. So are we all complicit? Is that what you're trying to say, Mike? Well, my point is that it's a complicated or at least that's what the show is saying. That, that and, right. So 
like you look at, you know, it's disgusting that Disney produced um, uh, Mulan, uh, live action Mulan, right outside where their where their Uyghur concentration camps were, while at the same time it's you know making uh, proclamations about various social issues and, and other things in the United States, and there, there's all because it's all marketing things, it's all image management, and you're just hoping. The right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, and honestly, some of these, so many of these corporations are so freaking massive. A lot of people don't actually know what is going on, what they're doing, um, and you know, you don't know all the ins and outs of all these different things. And a lot of them do, do no question, absolutely do terrible things. But they also provide services which, generally speaking, are good things, right? It's um, they're they're trying to give us things we that we want now. In this case, they hand us something where it's very mustache twirly, uh, covering up of information, uh, sort of akin to like the tobacco companies and the insider, um, where they absolutely tried it, the tobacco companies to hide information about uh, their research on addiction and, and the toxicity of, of cigarettes, even though I think people knew about it because, it, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, another soapbox. Um, and so here, like you have, I think the Roundup lawsuit was after, was well after this, wasn't it? Wasn't that in the late teens? Um, yeah. So, but that's like the first thing that came to my mind was was that it was the uh, was the Roundup. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. there's stuff like DDT, like DDT. Why did we use DDT? Because we were trying to control malaria and save people's lives. While did the trade-off of that was um, getting the pollutant out in the environment, which caused the eggshells of large birds to get thinner, and they would crush their eggs when they sat on their nests. So they hurt populations of, like, eagles and vultures and, and things like that. So there's all sorts – how much do they know? When do they know it? Do they cover it up after the fact? Um, you know, I think looking at uh, like the big uh, short was another one where if you look at it, it wasn't that they knew the things were going to happen that happened, but once they realized they were going to happen, they tried to save their own asses and not tell anybody what was going on. Right, right, right. And that's now, and I am not going to defend them on that, but I also understand it's a very human impulse. The fact that corporations, it's a, it's done on a on a massive scale with a corporation, but corporations are still people. Right, they're still human beings running them, and they're going to have those. those Is your name Mitt Romney? Innate instinct. No, no, I'm saying, but corporate. See, I don't like when people say what society's fault. Well, society's just people, right? All these things are groups of people working together, and all those groups of people are making individual decisions at the atomic level, right? When you break it down, um, so there's still decisions by human beings. There's decisions that the people make in this company. That are bad, and I think it's a little mustache twirly, right? Because I maybe I'm wrong. I don't know about Monsanto. I'm sure they did things that were not <laughs> above board in covering things up. I don't know if they were planting car bombs, um, right? No, no, no. This this is an extreme example to to right. make it more interesting for a fictional story. Exactly, but, uh, but, but there, there are, are real life stories of of. Uh, Companies covering things up like this, like oh, uh, absolutely, yeah, the cover like, up. There's a movie. There's a great movie called um, Dark Water, uh, starring Mark Ruffalo, um, based on the real story of a lawyer who decided to try and take Dupont to court for 
poisoning the water in a town um, with Teflon. Um, and it went on for, for decades, literally, um, just because they had so much money. Uh, but he, like, uncovered actual documents where they, you know, in the 70s, they figured out that uh, this really wasn't great for the environment or people using Teflon. <laughs> and they kept on doing it to make money. Um, yeah. And, and like, I, don't action. Anybody, I don't think anybody ever sets out, um, like in this movie or in that, in that, you know, I don't think anybody sets out to give people cancer. That's not their goal. Um, you know, but I, but I think the actual problem is, uh, people's desire for money um, because at a certain point uh, the profit outweighs any other consideration and is, even if something is harmful they'll cover it up so they can continue to make money and yeah, we so rationalize, here, people, I saying, people rationalize very well right they you know they will believe what they want to believe so they can rationalize away any harm that well that's because no study science I, and um, that's the banality of evil Right. Science is never absolute. So there's always some shading of gray that you can cling to. Right. Very rarely are things just like ironclad, 100 percent proof positive. Um, it, 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 there, there's a lot of uncertainty in this universe. And I always try to explain that to my, my students is that there's, you know, those such the facts are not things that are proven true. There are things that are we accept as true based on the evidence that's available to us now, and then I can go through a litany of things that everyone believed was true, even recently, and then found out we were wrong. You know, even the most brilliant minds on Earth bought in these things, and nope, turned out those things weren't true. So that's always going to have something. If you don't want to believe that you that chemical that you're benefiting from and is paying for your... your uh, your fleet of cars and your summer home and your children's education is causing cancer because then that would mean you're, you did a bad thing and that would mean you're a bad person. There's a lot of incentive to deny it yourself, right? Well, and delude and that, yourself. Well, and, and that's where it comes to the, this, this here is this, this company, you know, us. they, they invent this, this um, pesticide that is supposed to be good. And then the scientists, Inside the, the company, discover that it's not good, and so if they trash it, then they they lose gazillions of dollars, and people get fired, or they can cover it up, and uh, people die, and they just hope that no one finds out later, which will possibly um, make them lose gazillions of dollars and have people fired. So. They they uh, make the the bad choice rather than just suck it up. But again, we don't know enough. What, you know, if they had sucked it up, would the company fold? But again, a company that folds with even with all those people that would lose their jobs, or or even the damage that it causes to the company, and and it lose has to lay off a few people, including the the CEO. Is that better? than having 417 people die of cancer and who knows how many other people, and you know it's out there. And, of course, it's better to come out and just suck it up than to do what this company did. Right. Like I said, people, people have ways of, of fooling themselves, of convincing the themselves. That, of evil. Right. Um, and, by the way, I 
also coach the Montreal team at school. I work, we work with a lawyer, and he, he is a, he does everything in town. And he's like, so, and he will tell the kids, you know, uh, you'll have to pardon my language from time to time because I work for the fucking scumbags. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> so he and, he say, and, and I, and I do have, I have a book that's called, uh, how can you defend these people? Cause I want to like find a way to explain it, but everybody does deserve the best defense possible. And his solution, by the way, uh, I asked him, so, what do you do like when you when you have to defend somebody is like you know the the people that are you defend these fucking scumbags and they understand even the fucking scumbags deserve a defense because let's be honest no matter how scummy those people are um there are also innocent people uh, or people who are maybe did something bad but don't deserve to be railroaded either um the government is a massive, massive power that it can bring to bear on you. So that's why the burden of proof is always on. Oh, Mike, let me ask you this. But his answer was very simply that he doesn't ask because they're just going to – he doesn't ask them if they did. He doesn't ask them if they're guilty because he knows that if they are, they're just going to lie to him anyway. All right. Let me ask you this. So as an individual human being, if – if you were – if you, meaning anybody, not just you specifically, Mike, were in that situation of that lawyer, are you part of the problem because you don't have to defend all these people even if they do deserve a defense and the best defense they can get because I, your conscience says otherwise? So you could walk away and say, no, I'm not going to do that and let someone else um, do it who – is less, uh, I guess. Um, well, no, no attorneys. No, my attorneys are under very strict ethical guidelines, and um, people may laugh at that idea, but it's true. Um, there are things. Now, I'm saying that they don't ever break these guidelines, but if they're caught breaking them, then they can be disbarred uh, temporarily or permanently. They can be sanctioned. Um, so I'm pretty sure that, number one, they are not allowed to continue to help continue the crime. Covering up these things would be continuing, helping continue the crime. And they're not supposed to be hiding or destroying evidence either. Any evidence that comes to light is supposed to be shared. So when they find these documents, right, they are legal. I, I think, this is my understanding, they are legally obligated to put them out there. And for the attorneys to then hide those documents, so it's one thing to like the because that's really what this is all about is a document, um, which can be scrutinized and challenged in court in terms of its authenticity and so forth because the original version was destroyed and blah 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 blah. Um, they can, you know, put it out there in court and they can argue that it's that it's fake, that it's not real. What's the veracity of this? But they, what they can't do is destroy it or bury it. Is what they're not supposed to do. Because then again, you're 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 assisting in the cover-up, which means you're assisting in the crime. So they are they're very definitely limited as to what they're supposed to be able to do. They're not supposed to be helping the criminals get away with crime. And in this case, this is where you have this company engaging in criminal behavior, and they are I'm, from the reaction of the people there. They know they're dealing with scumbags, but they're not aware of the degree to which this company is going to protect itself. Right. So are they complicit? Whether they Unknowingly, know or not. they're complicit, and but they're also cheap doing what they're paid for. 
Right, right, right. So, so, so the, the the comedy show that you said is that no one's going to heaven because everybody's interconnected. Maybe more guilty than others, but you know, if you buy an iPhone, you're guilty. Versus these people here who are defending a company they know are awful, they're as guilty. They're guilty too. So, well, I I want to step in here with my opinion. Um, I disagree simply for the fact because if they weren't doing it, somebody else would be. Um, they're part of the legal system, and part of the legal system is giving everybody a defense. Um, so I don't think they're complicit because they're doing their job. Well, and that's my point, is with Mike's example of the, the lawyer in his town, which is he doesn't have to do it. They don't have to, but they mm-hmm. choose to. So if we just look at each individual as a soul, especially if we use Mike's TV show example, they if they walked away and said, I'm not going to do it, and some other person does it, their soul is saved in a sense, at least in that case, because they refuse to do the the defense of a company that well, deserves a defense, even with, if they're bad. I think you're dealing with a larger good, um, which is that there has to be a system. No system is perfect. But we can look at, say, oh, I don't know, Stalinist Russia. You know, we can look at China right now. Um, there's, there's any, no, what was that? There was, um, there was a TV series. I can't remember. Was it uh, like Jailed Abroad or something like that, which like talked about Americans who went overseas and ended up getting locked away. Um, there's no protections in a lot of these countries, and even countries that we consider to be on par in terms of human rights as with the United States. And They're guilt, you're guilty rather than innocent before. Right. Well, I think it was like Japan where you could be held. If, please please yeah. correct me if I'm wrong on the, the specifics here. Yeah. Where a lot you of the European like, countries are that way too. Where you could be held like a, a month without being charged, yeah. where uh, the, the, I think it was the, they were talking about how the – Defense, it's kind of like it's shameful to defend a person if everybody thinks they're guilty, right. which is which is weird because we can pull up things like, say, the Central Park Five or the Duke Lacrosse case where everyone thought they were guilty and they ended up not being guilty. That's right. uh, so the idea here is to get the right people. It would be lovely if we had a system where we knew for a fact – who are the guilty ones and who are the who are the innocent ones, um, and who are the? But we don't, and so everybody gets that defense because who is to say? And so yes, that does mean you're going to end up defending people who are guilty, and you hope to hell the people who are prosecuting know what the hell they're doing, and will be able to deliver justice. The problem is when you start playing games. I um, I listened to um, a legal podcast and one of the cases that came up recently. Uh, I can't remember who the company is, and I don't want to mention a company for fear that I'm naming the wrong one. We're basically sanctioned by the judge for playing bullshit games, which is which are typical bullshit games you see from any large company, which is the, fine, you're going to sue us. We're going to hit you with so many counterfactuals because we have all these lawyers on retainer anyway. We're paying them regardless, and we're going to bankrupt you and postpone this and postpone this so he drags it out for as long as possible. We're going to, you know, give you as little as possible. And, like, the judge, you know, 
like, and they, they're lawyers, basically. But judge, you asked us to do it, and we provided it. And he said, yeah. And the judge said, yeah, but I had to ask. I should have even had to have asked. You should have provided these papers and things like that. So these companies, um, these lawyers will engage in any tactic. There are loopholes in the system. They will use whatever rules they can to, to gain the system and turn out to the best advantage with, for the clients. And that is part, part of the problem. And I have no idea how you reform the legal system to get rid of these things. What are the possible negative consequences? Because like a lot of things, um, there's so many other legal principles tied up with other ideas and cases and things that once you change one thing, you could have unforeseen consequences. And these loopholes exist because of other changes you made other places. So I don't know what the answer is. You would need somebody with way more, way, way more legal background than Eric and I have, which is just, well, we know lawyers and have spoken to them. <laughs> you know? Right. But I'm not even um, looking at it that way. I'm looking at it as an individual human being can make you a choice and they don't yeah. have to sign up and work for that company or that no, lawyer. No, they, they, they don't have to. And, you know, firm. you don't have to be a mob lawyer, right? No one says that, you know, if Tony Soprano comes in your office, that you have to be the guy to represent him. Uh, Tom will, Hagen. Yeah, Tom Hagen. I will, I will absolutely go back to uh, to my, you know, one of my favorite shows of all time, which is Better Call Saul, you know, where you can see the many times that character had decisions to make and consistently made, like, the wrong ones because he let the money convince him or let other things convince him that drove him in going into the wrong direction where he could have, you know, just been filling out wills for nice little old ladies. But nope, the, the, the drug dealer wants, wants him as to defend him and he's going to offer you all this money. So I just want to, I just want to clarify Phil's position because I'm, I'm on the edge of vehemently disagreeing with him. Because it sounds like what you're saying, Phil, is that any defense lawyer that ends up with a client who's guilty is a bad person. And I don't think that's true. No, I'm, 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 that, that, that's a fair point, but that's not what I mean. I, I mean, you can become a lawyer like a tax attorney or some other type of attorney and not and still make a good living and do a good job at your work and not – get in a spot where you're compromised like these people are, as as we'll see when we start discussing Tom Wilkinson's character. Now, all right, so, you know, we, we've been talking about uh, the the morals and the interconnection and all that stuff. Uh, maybe at this point we should start talking about the movie and the specifics of the film itself and the characters and all that. So uh, is everybody all right if we throw up the spoiler? I'm fine yeah. All right, so we'll just sort of drop the spoiler at this point here. So we'll talk about everything and anything. So more specifics to the film now and how some of this relates to the film rather than just uh, general stuff. Um, all right, so we're in the spoiler section now. Um, so let's let's talk about the little setup here. So basically, um, we learned that uh, George Clooney's character, played by Michael Clayton, uh, is what they call a <laughs> fixer. <laughs> George Clooney, who plays Michael Clayton. Okay, that, that's not what you said, but okay. Oh, oh, I, you George Clayton played by Mikey, Michael Clooney? Oh, whatever. <laughs> Either way, uh, I, we we had to pause for a second because it's... uh feels discombobulated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, let's just say that one of the child's upstairs was being a little stinker. So anyway, um, 
we uh, find out that he, Michael Clayton, is a fixer, uh, which means uh, he's a lawyer that fixes up all the messes that happen to the various clients for this giant company uh, lawyer firm that he works for called Kenner, Bach, and Ledeen. Uh, it is curious that we find out that Michael Clayton is not a partner, uh, which is an interesting aspect. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, the firm is uh, run by uh, a number of folks with uh, Marty Bach, played by Sidney Pollack, uh, who is actually one of the, the names on the, um, the, uh, the company name, the lawyer firm's name. Um, now we have Tom Wilkinson, who is Arthur Edens. He's a lawyer and a partner that works for their biggest uh, case or client, uh, which is a company called U-North, which is a uh, kind of a giant conglomerate uh, company, but uh, specifically uh, they make um, uh, products to help farming, basically. Uh, what's that, Eric? Pesticides. Yeah, pesticides. Um, and then uh, Tilda Swinton is the counsel uh, or the head lawyer, uh, therefore, an executive at U North, the company. Uh, so, what happens is that Arthur Edens uh, uh, has a breakdown, whether he was always bipolar or or manic, manic or whatever, I, isn't really the point, uh, in a sense, because what happens is that uh, he basically is having a breakdown because he's been working on this case for like 13 years and there I can use the 13 finally um, where he uh, actually I think it's six years but either way whatever number it is he is forced to uh, find or not forced to but he just finds out that he is helping or trying to protect this U North company from being sued for possible uh legal action against them for the death of 400-plus people from uh, cancer from one of their products that may not be safe. And he begins to have a nervous breakdown because he doesn't feel like he is a good human being uh, and that he's part of the, the uh, compliant in, in this. Uh, and then we have um, um, uh, Michael Clayton, who wants to possibly get out of the, being a lawyer, because he doesn't feel clean doing what he's doing either. And so he open, tries to open up a business uh, restaurant slash bar in uh, probably uh, uh, Brooklyn, uh, the hip area, the hipster area or whatever. But uh, his brother, unfortunately, is a drug addict, and he steals the, the, all the money. And so the Irish mob is now after um, Michael because uh, Michael decides to take up the – the bill from the Irish mob instead of his brother, so his brother won't get whacked. Uh, unfortunately, Michael Clayton has no money either because his brother stole all his money. Well, uh, and he has a gambling problem. Oh, that is true. Yes, and he has <laughs> his own behavioral health issue. Uh, he he has a gambling problem, so he's blown a lot of his own money as well. Uh, and then Tilda Swinton's character, Karen Crowder, as we mentioned, is the head of the the uh, law department at U North, and we could just say that um, I'll just use the words that most of the critics uh, I read uh, said uh, that he's a sociopath. 
Um, though one critic did say that she's a victim of a patriarchal society. But uh, of we, course she does. Of, of course, God well, forbid course. she has her own uh, uh, agency and can decide to do shitty things on her own. Because nope, women can't do that. Only men can do shitty things. Right, right, and and and, I don't and basically, the path is the right word though, because she appears to feel bad about it. I think it was she feel bad that she's going to get caught, <laughs> but but yeah, yeah, all right, I can see that what you're saying. Yeah, when she's sweating in the beginning, yeah, mm-hmm. okay, that's fair. Uh, also, Don Jeffries is the head of the the U North CEO, uh, played by Ken Howard, who is known for playing uh, the coach in White Shadow uh, back in the day. Uh, and it's odd to think this, but only 13 years later, both Ken Howard and Sidney Pollock have uh, passed on. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, people dying. Yeah, my um, wife spotted him. I hadn't. Um, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, by the way, one of the guys is uh, I can't remember the name of the act, the character, but he played uh, I guess Danny from uh, Caddyshack. Was another one of the actors. Oh, how about that? Recognized because it's you know twenty seven years 20. later. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, so that that's pretty much the setup. Uh, it starts off where Michael Clayton has to go uh, do his fixing after leaving a, a poker game, uh, and we've learned pretty quick that he uh, is a melancholy folk because there's a guy at the poker table um, that. Um, he insults, and then they, they, the guy just starts re- reaming him pretty bad, so Clayton leaves, and he gets called in by this guy named Walter, a fellow partner, or actually a partner, unlike him, who's out in Bermuda, who can't help this big client that just ran over somebody and, and left the scene uh, at midnight up in Westchester County. And... Uh, character actor is uh, Dennis O'Hare who plays this guy, Mr. Greer. And so Michael Clayton has to go up there and fix it. And we find uh, out that he's a janitor, is what he calls himself, not now, a American. This movie does something that I is one of my least favorite things in movies, which is that it starts you off by showing you a sequence of events and then says, four days earlier. Yep. <laughs> that pisses me off. Because like you just put a spoiler in your own movie. What the fuck? Um Right. And I don't. I don't like that. I don't like that approach. Um, I did yeah, because the whole I film is, is a about flashback that game this time around. Um, I don't know if I'm just dense and didn't pick it up before. Um, but did, did either of you notice that uh, he gets a check for eighty thousand um, dollars from the from the company, the lawyer's office, but then. When he gives a check to the Irish guy, it's seventy-five. Yeah, that was correct because what it was, it was sixty thousand. He owed the the Irish mob, or his brother did, but he took the the ticket for his brother, and then it was fifteen grand points, meaning the interest. Okay. Yeah. So it was fifty seventy-five thousand. He owed the Irish mob. So basically, he, he, he went to that grand. poker game because he scammed money out of his company. Uh. No, he he, he kind of technically was true. He said he lost all his money because uh, and he needed to cover the bar. So, but yeah, yeah, but he, he said of, the amount is five grand too high, and he wouldn't have been at that poker game without the five grand. That is a fair point. You're absolutely right. Yep, yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, so that extra five grand he he used for the poker game. That's right. Yeah, yep. yeah. 
yeah, so he still has his behavioral health issues, for sure. Yep. Uh, and so uh, the thing that was interesting about this whole first scene is um, as he's driving back to where he lives, which is Manhattan or Brooklyn or wherever the hell he lives, um, he spots these three horses on a horse farm uh, in Westchester. Uh, Parks goes up to look at the horses, um, you know, because it's like a quote-unquote magical moment. And then we learn later that it's from a book that his young son and his friend Tom, uh, Arthur Edens, played by Tom Wilkinson, have. And um, so he goes up there, and as he's up there looking at the horses, his car blows up. So then it go, says four days later, as you said, Eric. And, that, and then we begin. So the whole rest of the movie is a flashback. Um, so the next scene shows the book in the video game. The uh, what's it called? Uh, Realms of Con- mm-hmm. and Conquest or something? Yeah, something. Yeah. Um, Uh, and it sets up pretty much the the rest of the the beginning of the film, which is we learn that he's he's seventy five grand in debt to the Irish mob, and the Irish mob guy is kind of like the lawyers and stuff because he's not really thinking he's a bad guy. He doesn't hate Michael Clayton. He, he just needs his money. He just needs his money. You know, if and any if they were neighbors, they'd probably be good buddies. You know, or or say hi. You know, have a beer after mowing the lawn. You know, but. Yeah, so that I felt that was an interesting relationship, and then um, we learned that he lost all his money because of his brother and the gambling uh, in that one scene. And then there's another interesting thing too in that scene is it's at the bar and there's an auctioneer auctioning off everything, and he's selling off all the furniture. And there's a line later in the, in the film that Sidney Pollack says, "If if we we don't get that money from you north, we're gonna have to." close down and sell all the furniture and um so i thought that was a kind of a good to be or as as uh, chrissy would say from the dark discussions podcast um and then we learn about um arthur eden who is in a deposition in milwaukee which is where you north is headquartered uh, or maybe headquartered uh about the this Anna, this girl that that is a survivor from the, the chemicals that killed her parents and are killing her brother, um, he takes off all his clothes and goes nuts. And Karen Crowder, played by Tilda Swinton, uh, is sent in to, to see what the hell's going on because their lead counsel is now uh, made a, a manic. Um, thing at a deposition that obviously isn't good for them because if you lose your lead counsel and he's crazy, uh, could they destroy your case and your own company? I think you got that mixed up, though. Karen Crowder works for the other side. Well, that's what I'm saying. She comes in uh, for you North. She works for you North. Yes, yes. And she oh, yeah. comes in. making sure what is clear. Yeah, 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 exactly. So basically what it is is that she comes like in for you North. Company. Yeah, yeah. She comes in for you north to see what the hell's going on because she's they're in panic mode because their head head lawyer for, from 
Michael Clayton's company just went nuts. And then Michael Clayton is sent in to try to fix the damage with Arthur Edens as well as uh, Karen Crowder in U North. And the thing is that uh, I read is that Arthur Edens' name may be intentionally named Arthur for King Arthur in Edens, as in the Garden of Eden. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. We can't hear you, Mike. You're all, Mike, you're all, we can't hear you. Mike? Can't you all right, I'm going to pause it. Well, I'm wrong with yeah, sorry. So I had missed a lot because um, uh, Spike is a good boy, but he doesn't know what the power button does. So yeah. uh, he stepped on the laptop and turned it off. But... Um, Taurus. But yeah, I absolutely think because I thought that so his name is his name is is I don't know about King Arthur, but I certainly think Eden. Um, you're talking about a, a a company that's symbol is plants and green, and you know it's all about growing shit. Um, so I, I think that's and the man strips naked, right? Because that's the whole idea, and the whole point of the corruption garden Eden is the you know forbidden knowledge. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that's to me that that's pretty clear why they they do that, why they take that. Um, that right. Yeah. Um, I honestly didn't even know what his last name was. I just thought it was Arthur. So let's 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 get into. Uh, some of the plot then. Uh, where do we want to go from here? Uh, that was pretty much the setup. Thought we just did. Well, that was the setup. You know, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's a strange film because it's, it's slow and they give us pieces at a time because the beginning of the movie, we have a voiceover of Arthur Eden's going nuts or talking about, not going nuts, but let me rephrase that, talking about things and how everything's corrupt and, and he feels like he was pooped out of a, the anus of evil and therefore is, is helping the bads and all this other stuff. And then we slowly learn out, learn what's going on. And, and the thing is, is that, that even uh, Michael Clayton doesn't even know that you North is, is necessarily bad. He just thinks his, his friend had a, a breakdown because 13 mm-hmm. years earlier, yeah, that's the 13, 13 years earlier, he had a, a nervous breakdown mm-hmm. and Michael had to help him then and, they, and they're good friends. Um, and then what happens is, is they start looking for his briefcase, Arthur Eden's briefcase after this meltdown, but Tilda Swinton's character, uh, Karen Crowder, gets it before the law firm. And that's when we find the big break, which is Arthur Edens has a memorandum that was signed to cover up the fact that they knew in advance from scientists that worked for the company that the pesticide was a cancer agent and should be discontinued. However, the scientists didn't know what to do, and so it went all the way up to um, the CEO and the CEO, rather than throwing away millions and millions and millions of dollars of development and losing stock and all this other stuff, because you know once they go out and they say, "Oh, we have to pull it," the stock price is going to drop. He covers it up and he signs a memorandum saying, 
cover all this up and, and keep on pumping out this pesticide. <laughs> and Karen Crowder freaks because if this lawyer who they hired to, to defend them in court now knows that they are 100% guilty and he just went nuts, or at least they think he went nuts, she is worried that he may go public and therefore destroy you North uh, without even it having it go to court. Well, and she's not wrong. <laughs> no, no, she's not. She's not. But she is wrong in how she goes about to try to correct the problem. Right. So what do we think of Arthur Edens? Is he, he obviously he does have some a breakdown, but is he truly mentally insane or is he having a conscious issue that goes along with some some behavioral health issues he has? I think he's and, having a nervous breakdown, and I think yeah. it's likely to happen to anybody who works in a high pressure law firm like that. Especially, I when, think it's a matter of both. I think what's causing the nervous moral. breakdown is, is the, the crisis of conscience. Um, is that he's found out that he's not representing people who may have inadvertently done a bad thing, that he's representing clients who have completely done a bad thing and knowingly knew they were doing a bad thing and covered up they were doing a bad thing. Right. And and the problem is the firm is in a, that he's working for uh, is in a position that he, I guess he's a partner of, is in a position where if they lose this contract, right, they can't pull out, um, They'll, they'll get sued for malpractice. Uh, they're, 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 the firm is never going to survive. And there's a lot of jobs on you know, the forget about the you know, end money and all the rest. Um, so he doesn't know what to do. I mean, he wants to do the right thing, but it's going to cost uh, a lot of people a lot of jobs and a lot of money. And yeah, if he does the right thing, awesome. basically it means that his law firm is going under. Right. And all the people that would hurt. Mm. And and even ignoring that, he's recognizing that he has, uh, I would argue inadvertently, um, been helping people who didn't make mistakes and not people who are just a little scummy, people who did something that was just flat out evil. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, I, I, I don't know what. Uh, I don't, know, I don't know what I would do in this position, uh, but I, I think uh, having a breakdown makes makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> right? Yeah, hundred uh, percent. I I think I would probably have a breakdown too. Uh, I don't know, wouldn't do what he did and take off all my clothes. And 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 the thing is, is he actually says why. If you pay attention, since I've watched it twelve times in the past week, um, what he says it in so many words that he took off his clothes. Because he was trying to um, remove the, the, his skin, that was like his skin of evilness, and and he was trying to get rid of that. And then he says to Michael, he goes, "Yeah, that was a mistake because uh, I thought it would be therapeutic, but it didn't work. I'm still basically evil, you know. I'm Shiva, the god of death. Um, and so, yeah, he had a complete nervous breakdown, and no matter his behavioral health issues." 
that he may or may not have had medication he was on or not, I, I can understand even if he was completely sane without any behavioral health issues that he could have snapped just for the fact that, oh, my God, I'm defending. I just yeah a decade of my life. It would be a horrible position. Yeah, yeah, and that's just terrible. Yeah, I don't, and I don't think it's, uh, like I said, I don't think it's one or the other. Right, that's yeah. true. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the two things together that yes. have caused this problem. I have no idea what we were talking about. All right, so, uh, yeah, so the behavioral health stuff and all that. Um, so, oh, 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 I, I was about to say that if he had discovered that document, like, four weeks into the suit, it would have been a completely different situation because then you don't have that many years and that many resources sunk into the whole thing. Well, and you, right. there's, they can't sue you for malpractice. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's true. That's true. Yeah, so, and, and again, his conscience, too, he would have been, said, remove me before any of this happened, too. Assuming he didn't grow. We don't know. I mean, maybe he was a scumbag himself way in the back. I guess he felt like he knew he was part of the machine, but he just sucked it up because, you know, of his family. But, but then, yeah, but then what happened, we learn about his history, is that his wife passed away. And that devastated him, from you know, from cancer or, or who knows, we don't know. And then his daughter is 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 a, a nut job, and won't talk to him anymore. And we get verification that she's a nut job from other characters in the in the film, which they uh, she's even more crazy than Arthur ever will be. So we're I can assume that she's probably not necessarily a good person, but. Either way, he's all alone now, and yeah, so that doesn't help too. So his personal life is going down the tubes. And so once his personal life, he has nothing to live for in his personal life, he now can focus on things that he he wouldn't have cared about necessarily before because now he doesn't have a wife and a kid and all this other stuff to protect and and whatnot. So, so yeah, he's uh, all messed up. Um. Now, let's talk about, uh, do you want to talk about um, Michael Clayton's character? Do you want to talk about Tilda Swinton's? Do you want to talk about um, even maybe Sidney Pollock's character? Because he's one of those guys that um, isn't a bad guy, but he works for a company that protects bad people and therefore could be bad as well. But there's a lot of stuff to talk about. Um, What's on anybody's list? All right. Well, let me let me let me start. Well, I think yeah. I think they do. I I missed unfortunately because of Spike. I missed like the conversation about the 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 flashback and the flash forward and the. I'm going to guess the reason they did that is because there's really nothing that happens in the beginning of the film, and this way they get to start with some excitement happening and they get to do the little story. They could have done the story about the the hit and run one way or another, right? yeah, that that well, it, handled. It's a good introduction to what type of lawyer he is, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. But it also shows that while he's a fixer, he's not going to do things that are illegal or completely unethical, right? Because he comes in, it's like, no, you fucked up, you're a dumbass. You know, it's not what he says, but it's <laughs> basically what's implied. 
is you know he's not a he's not a miracle worker. You know that he can't just magically make this problem disappear. Mm-hmm. You hit somebody, right. oh. they're looking at paint chips. They'll be by right. tomorrow morning, if not sooner. Right, and and then the guy, Mr. Greer, the guy that did the hit and run, he he tries to say, how about if we say the car was stolen, and. And, you know, so and you're right. Michael Clayton didn't go with that, and he is a fixer or a janitor, if you prefer, without with, without breaking the law. So he looks for loopholes, but he doesn't break the law. Yeah, he could have helped him. Like if he had, if this had happened, like he's not the wolf from Pulp Fiction. Right. Um, if this had happened and he called him right away before he left the scene, he would have told him to stay there. Um. He would have been able to say, "Okay, we can. This is how we can fix this. Is this guy was jogging at night? No, no, no. It's there. There may have been some plausibility as to uh, why he was a he was maybe not completely at fault at this. Uh, but once you leave the scene of the crime, then you're an asshole. <laughs> then you're an asshole, right? Then you're screwed, and there's nothing he can do about it." Um, you're going to get caught, and you didn't drive uh, a you know a gray Toyota, where there might be a thousand of them in, in the uh, Los Angeles right. area. Right. right, and he also used the thing that you know we're in Westchester County. There's no crime here. You, you, the, car, the state troopers are only six miles away. Um, it's a slow night. Believe me, you're on the top of their list. Yeah. Oh, by the way, Michael Clayton graduated from uh, Washingtonville High School. Uh, that's not far from me. I used to sub there. A long time ago, kids were assholes, so that makes sense. Yeah. There you go. Um, so, yeah. So then, yeah, like we said, we flash forward. Uh, we talked a little bit about uh, setting up Michael Clayton's issues with with the mob and his brother. Uh, and as Eric, you said, the five thousand he he got extra from the, the company, so he could use it to gamble. Um, so he heads out to Milwaukee to uh, get Arthur Eden's back. Uh, what you well, have to meet with Catherine Crowder, too. But go on, Mike. Ever. I was just going to say, I don't... There's some, an aspect of this movie that doesn't make sense to me, and maybe I'm just dense, but I don't understand... I mean, the girl who was in the room giving the deposition when yeah. he had his incident, like... He ends up like talking to her on the phone and flying her out to New York, and I don't understand why all that happened. Well, that that's a good thing. So basically, what it is is he's against Anna because he's defending you North, but he has his enlightenment moment and breakdown, and he says to Michael Clayton that Anna is like a lens. In other words, she was something about her was innocent and all this. And so he says, she was like a lens to me. And when you, you put on a lens and you look through the lens, you see everything differently and more clearly. And so he decides to call her and she even says it on the phone. She goes, why out of all these people, 400 and something people in the lawsuit, why are you calling me? And he goes, I don't know. And then he says the lens story to her too. And he goes, you know, you just look at something different. And for some reason, she trusts him. And since he's such a childlike character at this point, like she is, they kind of get along really well, especially since she now knows he's on her side. And 
he flies her out to New York because he's going to pass out the 3,000 folders that he, he made to prove that U North was guilty and win their case. And he was going to probably call the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Post, Daily News, and so on and so forth. So, But why did he do that? Because he, he was going to have her as the witness, I'm thinking, at the press conference that he was going to do. Say, here's Anna, who's one of the victims, who's been victimized by U North. Uh, you know, her parents died of cancer. Oh, okay. her, you well, know, that's lame, yeah. but all right. Well, he's insane, and again, he looks at her as his innocence. And well, stuff. but he's also bringing in the other party, right? And yeah. I don't think that's quite insane. I think that's – he takes the representative that he's been going against and the yeah. person who actually has um, has a stake in the lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So I think it just makes sense for him to have her there. And I we, I don't know what it is. Well, she cuts a sympathetic figure, but yeah. I really don't think there's like any value to have somebody there as a quote unquote witness. Oh, I think he's I think he's a fifty something sixty year old man who's a little bit smitten with her. Uh, I don't think it's entirely a pure sure thing, even if he doesn't want to. I was afraid of that. <laughs> well, also 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 though he 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 um. You know, you have the sympathetic witness. That I mean, that helps his conscience too. I think. Yeah, and I was going to say, like, I don't. I'm not saying that he's necessarily uh, wanting to, um, you know, right? Hook up with her. Hook up he, with her. But, but, but he maybe because you, you you do have certain things like where you can have those internal sensors that say. You know, oh, maybe he's smitten with her, but because of the age difference, but like maybe he just reminds him of his daughter, or right. That's what I was it thinking. It channels it in more yeah. of a positive way rather than that, you know, uh, Harvey Weinstein way. way. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I think he just has those, that affection for her. Particularly, he's made that connection with her for whatever reason. Um, he's made a connection with her, and I think he's going to use her to to help blow the whistle because uh, he needs an ally somewhere. He needs somebody he has right. to be able to tell about this, and he right. needs somebody he trusts. I, I think that's that's it. And then, of course, the reason that she gets stuck at the airport is because uh, yeah. he decides to jump out a window. And, you know, oh no, 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 not jump out a window. Take overdose on pills. That was it. He overdosed on pills. <laughs> Quote unquote. Um, now, I, I want to talk about this because this scene too, because it's related to all that. Which is when he's in. So Michael collects him at the the police department in Milwaukee, and they're in the hotel room. And Michael, you know, just leaves his phone uh, in the bedroom, and and uh, Arthur is, is trying to calm down in the bedroom. And George Clooney's uh, or Michael Clayton's young son, ten year old or whatever, calls the cell phone to say hi, Dad, or whatever, you know, good night or whatever. And Arthur picks up the phone and has this big long conversation with Michael's son childlike about the book and video game series that his son Michael's son's bit into and we have a scene earlier where Michael's son's trying to explain it to Michael and Michael's being like a typical parent going oh yeah 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 sure wow oh yeah wow that's interesting yeah well you know like not really paying attention and 
Arthur, though, pays attention. And everything the kid's saying is basically in the game and then in the book are how he feels. Because the game is basically what it is in the book is that all these people are in this fantasy world, you know, like Lord of the Rings or, or Game of Thrones or something. And they all um, are banded or lost or, or, or something. And, and they land up in this camp or town, if you prefer, but it's really just a camp. And they, none of them know where they are, how they got there, and if the people that are in the camp with them are from our enemies or not, whether they're from the opposing army or not or whatever. But now that they're all in the camp together, even if they may be from different armies or different countries or whatever, they all are just the same and lost and, and trying to – They don't know who something. to trust. Right, exactly. And so Arthur is like, oh, my God, this is it. This is it. And he says, what's the name of the book? And so he writes down the book name. And um, this is where he gets the idea to basically go public with 3,000 copies of this quote-unquote book, which would say you know if is guilty. And he titles it basically the same name as, as – the, the the book that he heard from Michael Clayton's son um, with a red cover and all that other stuff. Um, well, basically to hide it, right? So it's not... Yeah. You didn't say top secret. Not labeled, you know, you, you North is guilty. <laughs> right. But it's also, a, a, it's also symbolic of the meaning of the story in the book. And as we see later, when Michael visits the the, the loft apartment that Arthur had, he finds the book with not only the picture of the three horses, but passages scra- um, highlighted and all this other stuff. So Meaningful was, passages of Moby Dick underlined. Exactly. But instead, it's this, this children's book, uh, or young adult book, I should say. And he it relates to him and his own mental state. And so I think it's also probably symbolic, not just as a cover to, you know, versus saying top secret, like you said, Mike. Am I right to think that, Mike? That it was more symbolic to, to Arthur? I don't know. I mean, he was a little wackadoodle at that point. Yeah. That's fair. Um, but it was an interesting little tale that the son said, and it was it was part of the Arthur character becoming childlike and maybe another reason why and this is where I'll go back to Anna he he falls for Anna as someone that's considered pure good or represents his daughter or his family before his life went down the tubes because he feels guilty now. I don't know. It's an interesting aspect. Um, so let's talk about uh, Karen Crowder for a bit. Um what do we think of her character? Now, I remember uh, some of the critics She's said... bitch. <laughs> yeah, she sure is. That's for sure. Um, it's... Uh, yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean... I, I assume she has enough money that she could have just walked and said, I'm out of here. But maybe she's already doomed anyway. But it appears that she didn't even know... I don't know. Did she know that Jeffries, the CEO, 
sign the document that could do the cover-up. And even if she didn't know, it didn't matter to her. All that mattered to her was to cover up the whole thing anyway. Right. I don't know. The look on her face when she read it initially seemed shocked. So I'm, I don't I, – I think maybe she didn't know. That's what I'm thinking too. And I don't think that the shock was – oh, my God, this is a horrible thing. But shocked is in we're fucked mm-hmm. is, is, is more how I felt because of the type of person she is. So – they have their own cleaners. Uh, Vern and Ikes, I think the other guy's name is. Uh, basically, they're, I don't know who they are really, whether they work directly for UNORTH or if they're just a couple of guys that UNORTH uh, has to call every so often. Um, but basically, they they do everything. I believe what they're what you call Independent contractors. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, but you know what's interesting about the characters, too, is that they don't want to go to the far end. They always want to go with uh, the more ethical solution, I, I felt, because it's oh, kind of interesting. Yeah, yeah. In other words, they don't glee in, in the murder, even if they do have to murder sometimes. It's kind of mm-hmm. interesting. Everything's business. It's it's. More, it's even different than the mob, though. It's just weird. It's it's not weird. It's it's interesting. It's very interesting. No, you're right. They are very businesslike, and they're just they're just doing a job. Like they've got, they have re- I don't think they really have any emotional investment in anything that's going on. They're just like, okay, I, we understand what we need to do. Right. I I wouldn't be surprised. We don't learn enough about their backstory or anything about their backstory. But it wouldn't surprise me if they were originally like black ops or ex CIA or or ex intelligence or something. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, guarantee they're not on Unor's payroll. Right. I mean, they're they're getting paid by Unor's, but they're nowhere in the system. (laughs) Oh yeah. Well, even if well, these guys are the cleaners, right? (laughs) They're they're the thing that Michael Clayton technically isn't. Um, but even if they're sociopaths, um, murdering somebody is hard. You know, you have a lot of evidence to cover up. Well, no, again, murdering somebody and getting away with it is hard. Right. Thank you. Murdering somebody getting away is hard. It's a lot harder than, than making problems go away in any other way. So it makes perfect sense to me that they may not be interested in, uh, in murdering him, it could be because of conscience. It could also just be a matter of practicality. It's a lot more work to do, um, and if you get caught, the the punishment is going to be a whole lot worse. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. There's a difference of them just tapping the phones and, and taking pictures of medication and papers in someone's apartment, which is all illegal. But that's probably a little different than murder, right? So if Anybody, if they're going to get caught, it's it's better to be caught for taking pictures of someone's medicine and papers in their apartment and breaking and entering than murder. So you're right, Mike. Are they trying to dissuade her from the murder because of the, the cleanup and the, and the amount of work they have to do to do it? Or are they have any conscience and they're saying, well, maybe we, because they even say we should probably bring in uh, Don Jeffries 
the CEO, and she goes, nope, nope, Don has nothing to do with this. This is my decision. Don't, mm-hmm. don't bring Don in. So it's, it is a good question. If, yeah, if, if it, you know, makes me think of um, uh, the TV show The Wire. Uh, there's this uh, the end of one of the seasons. The the drug dealers are getting raided. They know they're getting raided. They know they got the goods. They, there's no gunfight. They just open up the safe because what what's the point? They're gonna the cops are gonna bust the safe open anyway. It's an expensive safe, <laughs> and they just sit there. And they get arrested because there's just no point in in fighting it at that point. There's practicality to it. Um, there's a cost to it. Not everybody is going to go down like Tony Montana, you know, swinging the, you know, the, the, the machine gun. And I think that's, again, the case here. You just have a practical approach to problem solving more than anything with these guys. Right, right. Now, it's um, a thing that's interesting about this is that Michael Clayton inadvertently is the reason why Arthur Edens is murdered by Karen Crowder and her two hitmen. Because when he confronts Arthur in the alley of the meatpacking district to, near the loft where he lives, he, he says to Arthur in passing, he goes, and so this morning I go talk to, talk to um, our boss, and, you know, Marty, I talked to Marty, and Marty says that you're now calling some of the the platens on the case. And Arthur suddenly freaks out. He goes, how do you know that? How does, any, how, how, how does Marty know that? And and Michael Glenn goes, I don't know. They're, they're, they just told me. But the point is you can't do that. You know, you're, you're, you're going to take a fall for this. You know, And, and Arthur flips. He goes... And he basically says, if you're not the enemy, what are you to, to Clayton? And and that's when Arthur goes off and decides to call his own phone at his office where he announces what he's going to do. Because at this point, Arthur doesn't understand that the forces against him are willing to kill him, not just shut him up. And Michael doesn't know at this point that Arthur's in danger, and by telling Arthur that his phone, that, that they they know he was talking to the platens, Arthur is smart enough to know that, okay, the, my law firm or you North are are on my phone, mm-hmm. and Michael may be part of it, who's my best friend or one of my best friends. And so he becomes more paranoid and even writes off Michael as an ally. Well, and that's unfortunate because Michael doesn't actually know what's going on until he accidentally finds the receipt for all the copies. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so so that the, the amount of... I guess depression that must hit Michael when he finds out that he he wasn't there for his friend must be devastating. And one of the reasons too is he stays an hour late at his father's birthday party because his brother, who's the cop, says stay 
for the party for at least an hour because he was going to leave the same time his brother was because his brother had to go on duty. And had he left an hour earlier, could he have done, saved his friend? But I don't know. Stuff. So. Yeah. Yeah. But, of course, that probably weighs on him, too, you know. It's like, oh, if I had just left that hour early or something. Um, so, there's a scene that I thought was interesting, and it's interesting, too, is that there's a disc out. I have this disc from way back. I bought it the day it came out, so back, you know, uh, 13 years ago. And that disc had either two commentaries or one, but right now there's only a commentary for one if you buy the disc. And there was a commentary where there's a woman was on it, a couple of women that worked on the film. And I thought it was interesting because what happened was is Michael pulls over on the car and his son's looking at him like, what's now, Dad? Because they just saw their his brother Tommy, I mean Timmy, and his son asked him all these questions like, is, is Uncle Timmy you know, uh, crying? Is he crying because of the drugs? And all this other stuff. And Clayton pulls over and he says, I want to let you know, and he's talking to his 10-year-old as if the 10-year-old is like an adult. Like, um, your, your Uncle Timmy's a fuck-up, and you're not a fuck-up. You're strong. Uh, the Timmy's best day, you're better than him on your worst day. You're not one of these people that the world is going to, uh, fall down around just for bad luck, and you're not going to be one of the people that are going to say, why, it's me. I see it in you. It's not going to happen. And the woman on the commentary were interesting, because they, and, and I love the comment. I don't know if it, if it may just be a throwaway line for you guys, but I thought it was awesome where she goes, this is the reason why we love men. <laughs> because, and I thought that was awesome, because it is a good point, because here's a guy that's telling it how it is but also a great father, even if it's a little harsh. And, and but he's a loving father. And and the woman, the two women on the commentary go, "That's the reason we love men." And I thought that was awesome. But I don't know. It may just be a throwaway I, thing. I actually wrote that down in my notes because uh, I thought it was good because it shows he's a good father. It shows he loves his son. He, but also shows he recognizes the reality. But he's offering him comfort and support. Uh, not only that he's better than his, his dumbass brother, he's better than he is. That he, he, yeah. And actually, I mean, I, I don't know if I would say he's talking to him like an adult, because I don't know many adults that would sit themselves and somebody down and say, you're better than your brother, or you're better than your uncle. But he's, right. he's being honest with him. He's leveling with him. He's not sugarcoating it. But I think he's still putting it in a way that, that is a fatherly way. Um and, and I think that was a great scene. I think, again, all of this is trying to show him as a flawed human being, but a decent human being, and that he's not a perfect father. His, his son wants him to read this book that he's never going to read and calls him out on it. Uh, he's not always going to be there. He has to leave his father's birthday party early, and then when he stays, he doesn't really want to stay because he's got other shit to do. So the work is, is eating into it. It's eating into his life. Um, so he's not a perfect person, and he's certainly not dealing with the greatest human beings on the face of the planet. He's not, uh, you know, building homes and with Habitat for Humanity or something, but he's a good, he, he's trying to do the right thing. Even when he was doing things that are, you could argue, 
you know, is helping out the, the the rich and privileged by helping them get out of a uh, a hit and run. He's only willing to go so far. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I like that because the, the scene shows two things, like you said, Mike. It shows that he's trying to do good, and he also knows that he's flawed because he he knows what he does for a living. He knows what his, his gambling problems have done to him, and he knows that all the people that he associates with are generally uh, amoral in a sense. Um, and so he's stuck in this cycle for a number of reasons, including his own fault, in a sense, even if it is a behavioral health thing, such as gambling. Um, and then just the, the fact that he's um, so good at being a fixture that he's a fixture, um, instead of you know doing trial work or whatever he wanted to do. Now, what, what, what's your guy's opinion why he's not a partner yet? That's kind of strange. Because a partner couldn't, he does. Okay, so, so a part, they can't have a partner do his work. Because I, I don't know what law firms do necessarily, like what, what determines a partner lawyer versus him. Because if he's there for 17 years, can they just make him a partner and still have him do what he's doing? I think, not, I think he's supposed to be on a down loan. Yeah, because they, like they said, they looked at him and they whatever it is that he's doing on the books, uh, they don't know what he they, like. When you look at what he's doing, his official job script, they don't know what he does because he's, you know, it's it's doing trivial stuff, is what he's doing on the books. Um, right. But he's being paid really well to do trivial stuff. Uh, he's not right. in, so, so. So what does he do? So basically, they 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 want him where he is. But he's just way too valuable an asset, and uh, making him a, a partner makes him a public face of the law firm. Uh, he has to do things. You, you can't have that person doing things on the down low. Well, and that's what that's what leads to the confrontation with the other dude. I'm not sure. Was that another partner that he was? He was. Yeah, yeah, Barry. He's the number two after Marty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, basically, that confrontation was was, you know. He, he he said at the end when they finally gave him the check, he was like, "And you you have to sign a, a non-disclosure agreement because it makes us a little too nervous when you walk in here asking for eighty thousand dollars." <laughs> right, especially when felt, you know he felt he was blackmailing them to keep their secrets. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, um, which he oddly uses later uh, when he when he captures Karen Crowder. Uh, by saying that hey, I sold Arthur out for eighty thousand um, dollars, which is ironic, even though that's really what he, what what he wasn't doing. He was getting the eighty thousand so he could get the the mob off his ass and his brother's ass. Um, but yeah, he wasn't, was, wasn't blackmailing them for the money. He just came to him honestly and said, hey, "You know, I need your help." Yeah, you know, he's he's pointing out, "Hey, I've been valuable. We're we're involved in a three million dollar lawsuit." Um, you should be able to afford this money. Right. Can, can you can you can you give me a loan? He's not asking for a handout. He's not asking for a gift. He no way. Should, he doesn't even imply. Like, hey, you do this for me, or I'll, or I'm not going to do this for you. 
Right. That's that's not even a thing he suggests. Right, but Barry, Barry isn't there. He doesn't have the long-established relationship with them. He just right. he just finds out that he came asking for a check for eighty thousand dollars and doesn't give give a crap about any of the circumstances. He's like, oh, so he just gets to walk in and ask for huge checks because he he knows stuff. You're right, right. You're right. And and Marty is, is more friendly to Michael, while Barry um, is not. May, yeah, is not, and not necessarily in an evil way. He just. It's it's he's using logic, which is why would someone come in here asking for eighty thousand dollars, and we have a problem with you North, and he is working with Arthur and so on and so forth. Um, so not to poo poo Barry, um, but but yeah, for for us we know the truth, right? So obviously mm-hmm. we're going to think Barry's a dink, and then and then Marty even says that Barry knows. Yeah, he's a we're dink. supposed to think that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um. So, uh, when Arthur dies, everybody is confused, uh, especially Michael. But Marty uh, says that people are just weird or strange, and they do stupid things. And you know, uh, he was lonely or whatever. And then he also says an interesting thing too during the memorial. Uh, service or not service but but hang out after work where everybody's depressed he says we kind of lucked out because with Marty going dying at that moment in theory that covers up the 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 mess because they they found out that Marty had the the document I mean they they knew Arthur had the document that said that they were complicit in that 400 people died and they knew about it and all this other stuff and the law firm was covering it, not covering up, but, but defending a company that was doing all this horrible stuff. So I, huh, I, I don't think that's what happened. Right. Go on. I, I don't think they knew about the document yet. No. Well, what happened was, is Arthur, um, I mean, they got lucky because Arthur had become a problem. He had flipped out during the deposition, well, and now he's yeah. a liability of the firm. Well, also, you got to remember, Karen Crowder came to New York to talk to Marty and showed him the document. And this is where, you know, Mike was mentioning that Karen said, well, the, the original got burnt in a fire, but we do have this document. And Marty goes, why the hell does Arthur have this in his briefcase? And Karen says, that's why I'm here. I'm asking you that. Mm-hmm. And then they cut. And then eventually Arthur dies. And, well, actually, Marty has has all the UNOS stuff brought into his house, and Michael goes there to talk to him for the eighty grand, and he says, "Is that Arthur's briefcase?" And, and Marty goes, "Yeah, yeah." He goes, "We were, why, why are you asking?" And, my, and Michael goes, "Because we were looking at for it in Milwaukee. How did you get it?" And he got it because Karen brought it to him, but mm-hmm. Michael doesn't know that. And Marty lies to him. He goes, I, I don't know. It, uh, it came up here with all this other stuff that we have here. You should see the stuff that that Arthur has. It's not good. He's trying to make their case, you know, the plaintiff's case. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, he already knew. And then when he dies, he says to Michael, we kind of lucked out because – he didn't, he didn't tell Michael that 
he knew about the memo that makes you North guilty, but he does he did tell Michael that Marty uh, that Arthur was was actually making the case for the plaintiffs. Mm-hmm. So that's when Michael decides to start searching the apartment. And he has to go to his brother to get one of those yellow slips to that say, you know, uh, this building is is closed to the public for whatever reason. And his brother's pissed, and he uses it as a he lies and says that the has something to do with the restaurant and the Irish mob. Uh, but it's really so he can put it on the door while he's inside. Um, but unfortunately for him, Vern and Ike's the the two uh, cleaners for you North. See him go in, and they call the call at nine one one, and he gets arrested. Um, but he does find the book that his son recommended to Arthur, and he also finds in the book the receipt for all the memos that were printed out in booklet form. That did Arthur anybody was, pause on the scribblings to see what he was he was writing? I mean, I did not. I wanted to, but I, for some reason, I never bothered doing it. I mean, you only had 12 opportunities. I know. Only 12. <laughs> only 12. <laughs> this is true. Because um, here's the thing. They make an, – an only it's a one-time watch, so maybe I missed something. Because they make a big deal out of this book. And, yeah, I get the theme, the broad theme. But it seems like it's like this clue, this key. And he's underlining things and writing things in the passages. And none of it – none of that ever really pays off, right? Right, right. So I'm just curious. Like, was that maybe, it? Was it just the the theme was, of you can't trust anybody? Maybe it was gonna pay off. Well, th- you're probably right, Mike, because it was probably gonna pay off if he didn't die, because then he was gonna have it all and explain it all and and use these references and all that. Probably, you know, in his insane rant to the press. But I think the main point was, yeah, it's like you said. Uh, we're all complicit, or I said too, which is we're all complicit. We're all evil. We're all doing the work of of the devil, if you if you want to use biblical terms or, or religious terms, in a sense. Even if we're not purposely evil, if that makes any sense. I mean, is that what you're you're implying? But is that what you're applying about the book, that it doesn't pay off? So you said that if it doesn't pay off, was the book simply to just say that we're all lost or that we're all screwed up? Or, right, or I'm saying what? so the, 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 the kid tells us the theme of the book. The theme of the book kind of ties into the, to what's going on here, that it's a world where all these people are, are – no one knows who's on whose side. Right. Nobody knows who to trust. Mm-hmm. Right and like Michael is with Eden. Eden is with Anne, but they're all but 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 Eden and Michael are with the firm, and the firm is with you North. You know, so what's all tied up here, right? What's the connections? Who do you trust? Can he trust? You know, he's got his brother. He can't trust. It's all this. So I think there's that. You know, it's that as a thematic thing. But it's not a real book, right? Right. I don't think it's real. I think it's supposed to be a made-up video game and book, you know, that's kind of similar to 
um, you know, the the game of magic and the Lord of the Rings and all that other stuff all combined. Yeah. Well, yeah, so it's it was, sort of like that. Yeah, they don't want to get they, they 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 don't have one that matches perfectly, or if there is, is one, they don't afford they can't afford the rights to it. Right. <laughs> Whatever it may be. So so there's no like going in like you can say when like you mentioned Moby Dick earlier, um, or any number of other. Books that are awry, Sound of the Fury. Right, and so where you can say, oh, well, yeah, remember, this is what that book is about. <laughs> so the character is always carrying around. I was quoting Heathers, by the way, when I said that. What's that? I was quoting Heathers when I said that. Moby Dick, yeah. Remember, they plant the copy of Moby Dick with meaningful underlying passages. I have right. not seen Heathers in 30 years. Well, you saw it for, for our episode for the, that we did for um, – uh, Patreon. I didn't well, or maybe, watch, yeah, maybe you didn't make that. I was not that on one. that one. Yeah, you were. Okay. That. Anyway, continue though, Mike. But my point is that when you do, it's that, not a real book know. that we should all know. Is what you're saying? Exactly. <laughs> it's not a book we say, "Oh, we can go look at what that book is about and see how that book's themes directly tie into this plot." And what? No, this is a sort of script. So I'm curious what they put in the book and what they put in his scribblings that seems to be giving him. Some weird sense of enlightenment. That's what I'm curious about. But I, I I think it was really just the son's story to him and to Michael, and then once he has the copy of the book, it didn't really matter what he was he was checking off or, or marking down or underlining because you know we already heard kind of the story from the son, so. I, I see, though, how it can be a little frustrating. It's like, okay, but is there more? Is there more to it than just what the son said? And yeah, we don't, we don't get that. I don't know if it's frustrating. I'm just, I don't know. I, I, maybe making observation. Yeah. Well, and maybe that's just because it's you know, we're we're, we're discussing the genre intelligently that deserves more intelligence or whatever it is. You know, that we're picking things apart where an average person won't necessarily be. Digging it, digging into it that deeply, or looking to see what's the message there. Um, so I don't know. I'm just curious if anybody had actually gone. I'm sure someone. This is someone on Reddit. You know, there's a, probably an entire thread dedicated to that. That's why I don't go on Reddit. Very right. rarely, unless I really need to find out what right. is this. What does that mean? Right. I, I have need to find out badly enough to go on Reddit. I have been using read it recently, but not for this type of work. I've been using it for, like, collectors, groups, and stuff like that. We don't want to know. No, 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 like action figures and, and, and do you, do you, John. Does anybody have Taylor's Candy from 2013? Oh, I, oh that's, that's a good point. I never even thought of it. Oh, no! Oh, no! Let's move on. So, but but I've been using. It We've for been like, talking uh, longer than the runtime of this fucking movie. Let's wrap this up. For action figures. Um, anyway, um, so yeah, all right, let's let's talk about the 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 twist. Anyway, so so Michael finds out the books, and now knows that he that Tom Wilkinson's character Arthur was going to go public with you North's guilt, and the hitman now tell. Um, Karen, that we have another problem, and the problem is, is that now Michael Clayton, not Michael Clayton, Michael <laughs> Clayton, Michael Clayton has surprise twist. 
Mike, Michael Clayton has the same information now that Arthur had, and it looks like M Michael Clayton is going to go public now too because not only does he have the memo, but he met Anna at the hotel in New York City. Um, and so what do we do? And she says basically killed Michael Clayton, and that's the the point where we learn why the, his car blew up at the beginning. So that now we're now we caught up to the the past, you know, the flashback where the flashback is now caught up to the present, and this is where uh, Michael Clayton. Now this is, this is again this all happens in four days, so a lot of it can be explained why they didn't know or people didn't know certain things because when the car blows up, we now see the present because it's caught up to the, the scene at the beginning. And Michael runs down to the car and he throws his wallet and his cell phone into the car. And his watch. Now, and his watch. Now, the thing is, is they say that Michael Clayton died in a car bomb. That's what they say at the law firm. And Karen Crowder obviously thinks that too. But the problem is there ain't no body there. Because remember this, the, the, the theme with the video game. This is using video game logic where you, you, you kill the bad guy and their body disappears, but their loot is left behind. Right. That's exactly right, Mike. Well played. Um, but again, since it's only four days, I can let that go because – by the time we catch up, it's only a few hours, maybe maybe uh, four or five hours since Michael Clayton's car blew up when all the rest takes over, takes place. I don't but, know. I don't know, like, explosives um, in terms of car bombs as how much body you would expect to repeat. Um, and how do they know it was and, a car bomb, too, right? At the, within five hours, or the car blew up. Well, I'm saying, well, certainly, the people there will be people looking. Right, people who set the bomb know there's a car bomb. Right, it would be a remarkable coincidence if they're trying to blow up the car bomb at the same time that the car malfunctioned and blew up on its own. Um, so I don't know if when you set a car bomb, if there is a body left behind, or how much of a body is left behind because it's blown to smithereens and it's all burned and charred, you may take a while to identify these little bits and pieces, which bits and pieces are organic matter, and which bits and pieces are rubber hoses. Um, right. But technically, with organic matter, but that's a whole other matter. Um, so, yeah, it, it buys them time. So, by having a wallet, a watch... Um, and a cell phone. And a cell phone. Well, a cell phone, first of all, makes more sense to me because he's not going to be able to be tracked. Right. Um, so that, that I get, and this is before the smartwatches, so I just think it's just things that might remain that they could use to identify and to say, we found these things there, and then I give them, give them, the bad guys a little time to think, okay, we got them. Plus the fact, yeah, it was a company car, they're going to know it was the one he had. Right. Car blew up, it was that car that he was driving, so he's dead. It's a logical right, right. conclusion. And, and, and why, it probably why would have been proven in the false at some point, but yeah, right. yeah, four days is well, not enough time. Well, especially well, right. when he shows up alive. And, and I do wonder. It isn't even four days. It's five hours between the point when the car blows up and he confronts Karen Crowder. Fair, fair point. Yes. 
Um, I do wonder how it managed to to arrange all these things in that short period of time. Given well, that I'll he tell you why. man. He gets no, no, it I'll done. T- I'll tell you why, how. It's pretty easy. But before I do, I want to say this. It's, it's an interesting trivia that I read. No, 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 no. We need to go faster. No, it's directly related to this movie. Um, the first smartphone came out only two months before this this movie opened. So they didn't have smartphones yet. That's why they kept on over the flip flops. Anyway, that's some trivia. That's, it was My brought up. was that he has no ID, no money, no wallet, right. no vehicle, and he manages to arrange all this in five hours. Right. Well, and he's I, in the middle I, of nowhere. Well, it wouldn't surprise me if he pulled out his coins and, and his cash. They didn't show that, but you figure no. that he wasn't going to leave all the money because he's going to have to pay, get a payphone or a cab or something. So he he probably had enough money to get a cab uh, or or whatnot, and he, or a bus ticket, and he got down to his brother, Timmy, who brought him probably to um, his other brother, who's a cop. See, that's the thing. Because his brother's a cop and a detective, not just a, a beatman, um, he can get this done probably quicker than if he didn't have a cop that was a brother and he didn't have a cop that was that high up in the, in the New York Police Department. So, I can forgive that. And he is in Westchester. And that's true. What was that? That's true. I'm sorry? That's true. That's... No, but what did Mike say? Mike that's... said that's true twice. Okay. Okay. F- fair enough. I, 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 I guess, I don't know. I just couldn't hear him. So, so it's not that far from New York City. Even if New York City traffic it's is not within walking distance, so, I mean, not in five hours. Well, I, I, I don't think he walked. That's the thing. I think yeah. he had to take a bus or something. I mean, because I think he got picked up at a bus station when his brother Timmy pulled up. I think it was the bus station. So maybe he, he took a bus or something. Yeah, I just he's near a farm, right? Because I don't think those are wild horses. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, this wasn't necessarily true suburbs, but it wasn't real rural. It was the fake rural, you know, you know, like like wealthy people that have seven acres in the middle of Westchester, but they're still not real rural, like you know, upstate New Hampshire or 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 Iowa. So um, yeah, so he, he basically sets it up. He gets a wire, and, and he's gonna he he knows that uh, she killed. Arthur, and that she probably was trying to kill him as well. So, am I right that he basically throws everything away? Yeah. Yeah. That is correct. Yeah, the end of this movie is that he's he's trashed his job. Uh, I mean, he certainly sent Karen to jail, uh, but at the same time, he, he totally hosed his law firm. But yeah, his law, his law firm is going to be uh, destroyed just like U North is. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. And U North is going to go down, and, the, and his brother is, is going to get his leg broke by the Irish mob. No, his, bro, his, brother's, his brother's fine because he paid the 75000 Yeah. Well, I thought he did. I didn't know that he was going to get the check or not because. Yeah, no, he, no, he no. Did. Michael Clean was de- de- dealing directly with the Irish. So and, there, and there's a scene where where Michael Clayton pays, pays them pays it off okay, before all, all right. this goes down. Yeah, because he, because he told him he would only have twelve thousand, 
and when he brought the money to the the Irish mobster, the Irish mobster says, "This is more than twelve thousand. This is the whole thing." And, he, and he, oh, right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, so his brother's fine. Yeah, but you're right. His, he destroyed his, his his company, which is the law firm. He just he he destroyed his career. He could never be a lawyer again, probably. And he's still bankrupt. I mean, he has well, five thousand dollars. That's it. Here's here. <laughs> let's know? let's pretend for a moment this is the real world. Yeah. Why? And it's not. It's movie world. Real world. This happened. You get this bust, bringing down a major law firm and Monsanto, yeah. for lack of a better yeah. term. He is getting yeah. a book deal. He's getting a movie deal. Oh, he's going on. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, he may he may not be where he was before, but he'll probably do fine. And um, and by the way, and his conscience is better too. There will be people that will, after he does that goodwill tour, they'll be like, and we hired the guy that right. did this. Mm-hmm. You know, think about like the uh, yeah. like Frank Abagnale from um, uh, Catch Me If You Can. Right. right. Yeah, yeah. Who then, then make, <laughs> makes his career helping out, helping yeah. the FBI catch the con men. Yep, exactly. Just like the people that get busted in casinos for counting cards, then are hired by casinos to bust other people who are counting cards. Yeah, right. Right. Yeah. So he's gonna, yeah. he's going to get hired by law firms who want to. His this is the guy out there as the honest face, right? The guy who brought right. down the bad right. people. So it wouldn't right. shock because all you need is one, right? You just need one law firm to hire. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's put this way: I remember after Bobby Orr retired from the from bit, uh, hockey. Uh, he got a job working for uh, a bank, and I forget what bank it was, uh, Mass Bank or something. I don't know. And and he became that he he was supposed to be marketing, which meant he was just the face of of the the bank, you know. So and, and it made the bank look good. That was Bobby Orr. Same with Jimmy Stewart, the actor. He was a a colonel in the Air Force or the Army or something, but he really wasn't. He was, but he was the, he was the face. You see, so so. It's it's similar to that. That you're right. Michael Clayton would be hired as the face, as like a marketing tool, you know, because oh, this is the guy that brought down you north, and and it was a hero. So that's possible. Yeah. I mean, I don't. There's anything he did. I don't. There's anything he did knowingly that would get him disbarred. Right. Well, he he broke the, he broke the the trust of you north, right? I mean, that's a good question. If you get that document, are you like, for for example, a priest and a and a doctor aren't supposed to tell the secrets that the people tell them? Yeah, but, but you can't cover up a murder. Oh, oh, right, right. No, but a doctor won't sell out your your hipper stuff, and a priest doesn't have to call the cops. If someone confesses a murder, but they'll try to convince you heard we saw exorcists thousands of times. It's Just a like, little different, Phil. Um, I believe what should have happened in this case yep. is that when author discovered that document, it should yep. be entered into evidence, and the uh, plaintiffs should have gotten this. Even, yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. So, but that's so, the Mike cousin Vinny rule. Yeah, so if that's the case, then then yeah, Michael Clayton may not be guilty for breaking trust because technically that document should have been in public record at that point, or at least, like you said, Eric, uh, given to the the 
the uh, plaintiffs at that point. Well, and I'm also not sure how much, like, basically he set up a sting operation to get Karen to admit to, to having him whacked, yeah. <laughs> even though it didn't work. So at that point, I don't even know, like, because of the extreme circumstances, I don't know if there would be an exception. Yeah. Cause, I mean, they, they literally tried to fucking kill him. So... <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and and they had no proof that he was going to go public. Right. I mean, all they knew was that he had the document now. He had a bunch of copies of the document. He knew that most likely his friend was murdered, Arthur, but that doesn't mean anything to them, technically. And he went and talked to Anna at the hotel. That's all they know. That's the only – but he – there was nothing that said Michael was going to the cops or going mm-hmm. public. So when they attempted to kill him, you're right. It's uh, extraneous circumstances that kind of clears him a lot about everything, don't you think? So I mean, I don't know the law well enough to say for sure, but right. But it makes sense. I certainly think it would be taken into consideration. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, and I bet you, I bet you the the he could get a, a job. For, uh, for the district attorney or something like that. I mean, if he wanted to go on prosecution side. If he still wants to be a lawyer. Yeah. When he was talking, I don't, talking, I don't think it. he does. Yeah, I don't think. No, no, he he wanted to get out. That's why he was trying to get the he restaurant. Get out money, right? He was yeah. trying to get out money. Yeah, exactly. So. No, but I love that uh, that confrontation at the end between Michael Clayton and Karen Crowder. Um, yeah. That's just fantastic. He's like, he's like, I'm not the guy you kill. I'm the guy you buy. <laughs> right, right. And, and he goes, oh, you're fucked. Let me take a picture. And, and, make me remind and she <laughs> goes, he delivers that line. is so classic to him. He's just like, you're fucked. <laughs> and, and, and it was great how she answers. She goes, you don't want my money? No, keep the money. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, and, oh, right. And then he said, it's Ten million. He goes. All right. Oh, let's go five. And I need it offshore. But then the other five for what you did to Arthur. <laughs> right. That was awesome. What yeah. um, was this like? The big thing for Tilda Swinton, or was she already a big name by this point? She was already big at this point. Yeah. She was. I'm trying to remember what what really put her on the map. Well, this, um, was, this was a big one. Kevin, for her, well, she in did her the career. Kevin one. She did Kevin. Uh, we needed that, wasn't, uh, that wasn't that was huge. After. That was, was an after. Yeah, right. <laughs> oh, was, what about that um, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe one, too? She she played the white yeah, was later. Was it? Was right. it? Yeah. yeah, let me look. I'm going to bring – all right, Tilda Swinton filmography. Here we go. So, Oh, I'm sorry. No, look at the second Narnia. The first one was before. Yeah, so she already done the first one in 2005. And she did Constantine. I always forget about yeah, that one. She did Constantine, how about that? And then she did uh, adaptation with Spike Johns, Vanilla Sky with Cameron Crowe, um, The Beach with Danny Boyle. Holy God! I didn't realize how old she is. She's got credits going back to '86. Uh, the protagonist with Luca Duaguagino. Uh, she's worked with a lot of big directors even before Michael Creighton. But I'm trying to see where things took off for her though. She's got a whole shitload of credits. 
Yeah, sure. Um, I, I think the first big title I see on here is Vanilla Sky in 2001, but I don't know if she had a huge part in that. Yeah, I, did she play Adaptation? Yeah, Adaptation was a big film. Constantine. Uh, Ryan Russian wardrobe. Yeah, she had a huge role in that. Michael Clayton. Then the other nine. Constantine might have been the first time I noticed her. Um, what's, what's that, Mark? I think Constantine might have been the first time I noticed her. First time you noticed her, yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I've always liked her and everything she's done. Well, she's an awesome actor. She really is. Um, but a lot of her roles, she, I think, intentionally takes on an androgynous look. Like, yeah, two of the few movies I can think of where she, she like, attempts to look feminine are We Need to Talk About Kevin and Michael Clayton. A lot of her other movies, she doesn't like. Like Constantine, it's, it's in, doesn't she play like Michael in Constantine or Gabriel? Sorry, angel, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she's um, I don't remember which angel, but yeah, she, I, I mean, yeah. She look, um, this is not meant to be a disparaging remark, but she's not Marilyn Monroe. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, she, she's got a nice figure though. Give me that. Well, you know, I mean, because well, she's healthy. No, but like look Hodge, at her headshot on IMDb. Hodge process, by the way. Um, Stop yeah, it. no, I, I know exactly. Look at her headshot. Her face, oh, she Philip. She, she has a broken. face. She was broken flowers with Jim Jarmusch, too. Um, um, yeah, no, I, I, I agree. She, she's she's pretty, but in a different way than than the normal way. But I know she did uh, the one with uh, uh, Good. But she's not especially Guadagnino to do the androgyny role. Right. Luca Guadagnino, I am love. I think that's no. no it was another one. There was one. Yeah, yeah well, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. But I know, I know what what you're saying. Um, oh, here it is. A bigger splash. That's the one. Yeah, she's 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 pretty good looking in that one. So it, it's she. That's the thing. She can she can mold herself into like you right. said. I just look to being very. Oh, and she did like she was a uh, Suspiria, right? Uh, yes, yes, she was. Oh, that's exactly right. The Suspiria. Yeah, she played three different parts in that movie. One of them male. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And and as you notice, it's by um, the same director that um, she's worked with him many times too, uh, Gorgon and Luki or whatever his name is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, which is that? Yeah, she's worked with him for at least at least three times. And she's done Marvel movies. Like, she just, I think she, she, at this point, she's proven herself enough that she can do whatever the fuck she wants, and that's cool. Yeah. She just did um, 3,000 Years of Longing, which, not a terrible movie, not a great movie, but she's fine in it. Right, right. And that's George Miller, so, you know, check that box. Yeah, yeah that's, that's another big uh, director, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, um... But yeah, this was when she broke out, and and um, uh, George Clooney and and Wilkinson all were like huge for like a, a eight year period right around that time. All three of them, because Wilkinson was nominated for In the Bedroom, which uh, is a great film, uh, which is another interesting. Uh, is that the one with Sissy Spacek? Yeah, 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 that one. Yeah, yeah, that's a good movie. That is a great movie. He was nominated for Academy Award for that, and um, he. It's another film that's really interesting about morals and what's right and wrong. Um, 
and uh, and then he was in the Batman, the first Batman with Christopher uh, Bale, Christian Bale. <laughs> weirdly enough, Bale. he played uh, yeah, he played uh, Carmine Falcone. Uh, weirdly yeah. enough, when I just heard his voiceover at the beginning, beginning yeah. I didn't, I don't know his, I didn't know the actor's name. Okay, I like pictured him in my head. I said, "Is that that guy?" I was trying to, I could picture him. I couldn't. It took me a bit to, to place the movie. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, wait, that's the guy who played, yeah, Falcone. It was like, and it was one of the Batman films. And then sure enough, he pops up. It's like, yep, that's him. I was surprised. Well, I just got it from the voice, which surprised me. And this is, this is a, a real weird year for me because both him and uh, uh, the guy that played Anton Segura, that was the first time I ever seen either of them really in a film. And I was like, oh, my God, these two guys are fucking amazing. Um yeah, what the hell's the guy from uh, Anton Sugar, that guy? What, what's, his, what's that actor's name? Javier Bardem. Yeah, yeah, that guy. Javier Bardem. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because they were both nominated for uh, supporting actors this year. And, and, and Bardem beat out Wilkinson. And Wilkinson was awesome. But it's like, how can you beat out Bardem, right? I mean, it was just an unfortunate, unfortunate timing for Michael Clayton because that, that year was just loaded with, with uh, good stuff. That's, that's the unfortunate problem and with, with any kind of awards like that is that like you could be the best actor in a weak year yeah. and win. And yeah. it, it means just as much as being the best actor in a strong year. Right. Well, and, and always, I always felt that it's, it's a construct because they use January 1st to December 31st and say, okay, that's, okay. that's the only films that I qualify. And it's like, yeah, but what about the film that was, was like a month earlier or a month later that would have swept all of those films, like you just said, Mike, and it doesn't matter, you know, because it's Well, see, that's to me like where you get into a um, – I know they don't have this in Hollywood. I, mean, I guess they do, like sort of with like the Walk of uh, – the, 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 the star on the Walk of Fame – or your your feet in the the Grauman Chinese Theater, but those are paid for more than anything. Yeah, sure. But like in, at least in sports, you know, you can have the the you know, you put in the Hall of Fame for a career, you know, so that maybe you were never, maybe you never won the MVP or the Cy Young or the World Series or the Super Bowl or right. whatever the you know the Heisman Trophy, but you still had a great career. Right, right, yeah. Because I always I, I always compared like Phil Necro and Don Sutton, which were awesome pitchers but they were never the best every year they played but career wise their stats were, were phenomenal while someone like you know uh, um, Don Drysdale or Sandy Koufax or Bob Gibson uh, careers were greater in a shorter period and so they're going in even though their numbers don't match uh, can we wrap this up guys but, yeah, sure. but I see what you're so, saying uh, yeah. do you want to uh, Bring up something about World War II before we go. Hey, no. I don't, all we have to do is talk about football. Instead, I should have used the football reference. No, no. Anyway, let's, all right. So let's, let's, let's wrap it up. We've been talking for two and a half fucking hours about this movie that's not that long. Actually, actually, we we took a minor break because of. <laughs> well, and that's your fault. So speed it up. All right. So uh, that's pretty much it. Uh, next time. On, on the film. So so um, we'll give our final thoughts on the film in a moment. But, uh, Eric, you actually do another podcast with your buddy Dan. Yeah, it's the Escanstein podcast. Uh, you know it or you don't. All right, sounds good. And, uh, Mike, what's, what's the main podcast on the network that me, you, Eric? The main podcast and... is the Dark Discussions Network. Uh, the Dark Discussions podcast, sorry. Uh, your source of horror film fiction and all that is fantastic. Um, so we will be reviewing something this week. 
fuck are really Jeez. aliens? We'll talk about it. Uh, we'll hang <laughs> up. Uh, that that one may have to be a little late too because uh, it's my birthday. So uh, oh, we'll, 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 we'll discuss it in a moment. Yeah, no one cares. You're damn right. Uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, um, all right. So let's get our final thoughts on uh, Michael Clayton, the film we just talked about tonight. And uh, let's start with you, Eric. Uh, this is a good movie. All right, sounds good. Uh, for me, um, yeah, this is a really good movie. Um, like I said, it was uh, uh, came out in a, in a year. Films were, were great, um, but but it's a film that um, not many people know about as much as they should. I feel uh, it has a lot to say about everything, uh, not just. Michael Clayton, uh, as Mike said, the title kind of stinks because it's it's kind of forgettable. But um, the, and even though it's a uh, character study about him, it's really about more about as as Mike brought up earlier about um, are we all guilty about something? And uh, and your analogy with that that TV show that I never saw um, really. Hit hit hard. It's like yeah, that's that's. You should watch that show, Phil. It's on Netflix. Yeah, it's good. I may I may have to check it out because it it sounds interesting because that's it has a fair point. Are we all guilty? Yeah. It's, it's a funny funny show. It's it's an amazing comedy about philosophy. It's unlike anything else I've seen. And what's the name of the show again? It's the it's a, the good place. Good place. It's on Netflix. Good place. Well, it was on yeah. Netflix. It might be on Peacock now, but gotcha. It was an NBC uh, show. So. Yeah, it's it's a great movie. Um, if if you like uh, thinking type films, a lot of dialogue and uh, a plot that you have to pay attention to, uh, you'll love this film. Um, so again, I, I'll say it that way because again, it may not be for everybody because a lot of people, some people like going to films just to laugh, you know, like a comedy or something. So it may not be everybody's film, but for people who listen to this podcast, I think it would be something that they would be interested in and, uh, definitely something to take a look at again, if you have seen it. And if not, uh, definitely take a look. Uh, let's go with you, Mike. Yeah. Well, uh, on the, on the positive side, no dogs die on the negative side, no children die. Uh, but other than that, I think the film is an exceptional uh, film. Uh, like I said, it's just – my complaint about the title is just that it's from the marketing point of view. It, it just kind of sits there. There's, it's really hard to sell this. There isn't a, like, like an easy hook besides, hey, George Clooney, Hilda Swinton, you know, smile. Um, if you like legal dramas, this is a really good one, or legal thrillers, um, or corporate thrillers. Uh, I think of the movie The Inside with um, – Russell Crowe was another example of something like this, or um, uh, Civil Action. Men. What? Civil Action? Oh, yeah, that's yeah. a good one. So, yeah. yeah, I think it's a really good film, if you like well-made movies. And, and by the way, I think when you get an excellent example of a movie that's not in a genre you love, usually you'll still like it. It'll be one of those, well, I don't normally like those movies, but I like this one. This could be one of those ones that you like anyway. Um, because it's good enough, I think, to transcend its its genre, if that makes any sense. So it really is a very, very good movie. I'm glad I watched it. I knew nothing about it going into it. Uh, great performances, really good writing, um, and, uh, and, yeah, deserves its accolades. And it was because of me you saw it, Mike. Always remember that. Always remember it. I demand credit. Anyway, uh, on a... <laughs> Uh, another Mental funny. Mental health uh, individual. Another funny uh, thing is that t- 
Titania from She-Hulk is in the good place. Jamila Jamil? Oh. Yeah, she is. No, no, no. Jamila Jamil is in your Marvel show. It's the other way around. She's in the good place first. Yes. Gotcha. Fair enough. Fair enough. So, yeah, maybe I'll check it out. She was pretty good in She-Hulk. Um, all right. So, uh, once again, uh, this film here, uh, Michael Clayton, uh, is, uh, well, I have to go back to, there we go. It is directed by <clears throat> Tony Gilroy uh, and written by him as well, who is the brother of uh, John Gilroy, who directed Nightcrawler um, and edited this film. Um, the film uh, was produced by a number of folk, specifically uh, Sidney Pollock, uh, and then stars George Clooney, Tom Wilkinson, and Tilda Swinton, along with Sidney Pollock, uh, where Clooney, Wilkinson, and Swinton all received numerous uh, accolades and awards and nominations for their performances, as well as the screenwriting and directing of the film by uh, Mr. Gilroy. Uh, the film is readily available anywhere VOD is rentable. Uh, it was on HBO last year, um, about eight months ago, and they, they pulled it eventually because it is a uh, Warner Brothers picture, but for some reason they, they pulled it. Uh, it'll probably appear over there again mm-hmm. at some point. Yeah, no kidding. Um, but um, again, you can rent it for you know a couple bucks uh, and whatnot. Uh, so that's pretty much it for our film tonight. Uh, so with all that, Eric, what do you leave us out? Alright, thanks for tuning in. Let's talk about Michael Clayton. Come back next month. We'll have another topic.